You were talking to J.R. Smith today. J.R. Smith has been a CEO of a company on the stock exchange in the U.S. on the Nasdaq. He listed his company, AVG, the antivirus company, on the stock exchange and with a valuation of $1 billion. Uh, a lot of people later made a lot of money <coughs> during that time. and um, uh, But JR is kind of like a curveball in a way that, you know, he... If you look at his education and his CV, you would never have imagined that he would be listing a company on the stock exchange in America. Um, and uh, especially a company that is from Prague in the Czech Republic. He was born in Seattle, um, part uh, American Indian, part German, part French, part Irish, a total mix. Um, never really did anything close to business didn't he educated himself as a as a expert in hospitality and culinary but um, yeah his his path has been interesting he's always been involved in in music he was DJing in 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 uh, Seattle and around uh, he's was there when the grunge Alice in Chains Pearl Jam Nirvana all that Soundgarden started he saw a lot of those bands playing in in small clubs um and he spent 12 years after college, after finishing that culinary um, thingy, uh, just teaching and promoting clubs and, and, and rave parties and stuff like that. And then somehow this guy ends up being a CEO of one of the biggest antivirus companies in the world. He grew it tremendously from 100 people to 800 people. Um, it's, it's a crazy story, actually. And, and um, But then when he, he left that, he... Obviously, had some money and uh, some time that he had, had hadn't had before, uh, at least the time, and uh, he started making music because he always wanted to make music. And uh, he's made an album. He's releasing the songs one by one this year and uh, next. And uh, the band is called Adam Tractor with a K. The tractor is with a K. Adam is just with no K. And. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. He's been working with some world-class musicians. Um, he's been getting really, really positive reviews. People are talking about that. Um, they don't understand why his band isn't uh, huge and stuff like that. So it's a very, very interesting story. He, he, he kind of, I don't know, you can say he lives his life backwards because most people start out in a band and then become CEO later. But he became a CEO first and then he started the band. Uh, the sponsors, guys, that's... Um, Alfred Jobs, Alfred.cz, where you can find thousands of jobs all over the Czech Republic and Slovakia, uh, available in English, Czech and Slovak language, and Russian. And, uh, yeah, easy to use. There's an app also in the App Store, Alfred Jobs in the App Store. And, uh, yeah, no no strings attached. Just, you know, browse jobs, apply for jobs. You're 100% anonymous, and it's free to use. And the Old Bar, Old Bar Prague on Cyphertoa 21, in Shishkov, um, very cozy, very nice, and amazing food. Oatmeals made out of oats that you can't find anywhere else. And skir, uh, the Icelandic dairy product from an Icelandic recipe made by the oat bar, produced by an organic farm. And uh, great stuff, amazing breakfast, brunch, lunch, afternoon snacks, healthy goodies. Everything is made in the oat bar, there is no pre-production anywhere else, no shortcuts, no nasties. And uh, great coffee, amazing service, and home delivery as well, on Word and Post. Check it out, guys. And if you're listening... Oh, what a comment. You're obviously listening. 
Um, follow the show and the, on Apple Podcast, you can actually review it. You can give it five stars. There, there is no possibility to give it fewer than five stars, unfortunately. Um, and uh, that would help. And to, yeah, share this. Thank you. Teach me how to Okay, I have you here, J.R. Smith. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. Thanks yeah. for having me. You can't have anyone called J.R. on a podcast without asking <laughs> who shot J.R. <laughs> yeah, have, yeah. have, you, have you ever heard this before? Uh, no, you're actually the first one. That, that's it's just completely novel. Yeah. <laughs> for, those, the, for those of you who, who were not born uh, early in the last century, then... J.R. was the main figure in a, in a TV series called Dallas, which uh, was a legendary <laughs> show. You watched Dallas, I guess. Uh, I think I was too young. I, I too watched, young? It was quite famous, and it was became quite famous in Europe even after it was in the U.S. And uh-huh. so when I came here in 97, I that's all I got. Oh, J.R., J.R. from Dallas. Yeah. I'm like, man, never heard that before. <laughs> but store clerks, like everyone. Really? Yeah, it's a, it, it it yeah maybe actually when you say it, I can I can actually imagine that it was old when it got to Europe because thinking back on the on the the whole I don't know clothing fashion and everything in that in that yeah. show was not necessarily from the time when I watched it. Yeah, but exactly. what, what does your name um, Jr. What's what's Jr. John Roberts? Yeah, I get accused of that a lot, but it. Um is actually just my first name, JR. And uh, my mother liked initials. Mm. I had some cousins that would go by their initials, like JP, et cetera. And so when I was born, she liked it. And so she just named me JR. So on my birth certificate, it says JR. Two cap, you know, wow. cap, capital J, capital R. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> is that is that common or? or? No, no, it's, it's pretty uncommon. Although even when I was in high school, I had two other guys that were also named JR but it, it was their initials yeah but they went by JR but nobody that's that's a very odd first name uh-huh <laughs> wow and and because and both fit because if it would if the r would be small then you would be like a junior yeah yeah uh-huh. yeah so i've got JR very unusual first name and smith which is probably the most common last name on the planet yeah right? so. <laughs> okay that's a good mix though <laughs> um JR what are you why are you here? What are you? Yeah, that's a that's a tough question because I'm a, you know, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a technologist, um, I'm a musician. Um, I've got a couple startups. I've always had a couple startups. It seems like, um, so it's hard for me to say what are you. You know, mm. and now I'm also a little bit in venture capital, as well. So yeah, it's a long story. I just believe in doing anything and everything that you, you're passionate about mm. it doesn't matter how old you are so that 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 journey just keeps going and going and going and lots of you know as we'll discuss i've done a lot of different things throughout mm. you know mm. from age 10 to till now but you 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 do have i mean like let's say your your face to the public is is um, through your band yeah yeah my band adam's tractor mm. um also th- 
through a, a venture firm that I work with as well a mm. little bit. Do a lot of content for them around cybersecurity, growing companies, uh, etc. And you but, did books on, on that topic as well, right? You wrote yeah. some books. Yeah, I wrote, uh, I've written a book called Wide Open Privacy, which is about privacy because as, as we're evolving in time, privacy is becoming less and less important. Uh, people are always trying to track you and know everything about you, you know, We can, mm. we can talk about this for hours. Um, and so I'm a big advocate of privacy and cybersecurity, and that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years as far as like hardcore occupation. Um, so yeah, mm. that's a big one. And But you, as I said, I mean, like, yeah, if I, if, I, if I look at for you on Instagram, I will find you in Adam's tractor, the band. I won't find you as, a, as the cybersecurity guy, no. right? Yeah, LinkedIn, you'll see the cybersecurity, but in uh, on yeah, on Instagram. So it's business on LinkedIn, rock on Instagram. <laughs> exactly. And, exactly. And, and why is Adam's Tractor, what's, why is that name of your band? I'm just always been curious about that. Yeah, it's a, it's a short story and it's not as deep as I'd like it to be. So if I tell the truth, it's, it's kind a of few guys. Yeah, it's a few guys sitting in the backyard, uh, barbecuing with their families and chatting. And one of the neighbors said, hey, have you seen the size of Adam's Tractor? <laughs> and meaning... Because it, it's basically a riding lawnmower. So they were calling anything that you ride or that does yard work a tractor. Whereas I think conventionally a tractor's in the field yeah, plowing yeah. and they're big On a farm. and they're huge. Now they're quite advanced and technologically they're amazing. Um, but I always think of the old big old tractor, you know, like your grandpa or your great grandpa had. And so Gunnar and I, your friend mm. and fellow friend from Iceland, looked mm. at each other and said, man, that is a great band name. Like, And that's it. Adam's tractor came it has no biblical connotation. It has no farming, you know, connotation at all. It's just Not a two band. words that sound really good together. Um, you know, I, as we'll talk about, you know, I grew up uh, in Seattle, and uh, it just sounded like a great band name from the '90s. Yeah, you know, so that that was it. That simple. Actually, that's the yeah. So so you're telling me for the first time that the the guy that helped you inventing this name is actually the guy that connected us. Yes. And you yes. claim that we met at the grill party in his place, and I claim that we met at an Alice in Chains concert in Prague. <laughs> yes, yes. So, yes. so we have t- we have t- lived with the two same guy in the middle. Yeah, the, the same, same guy, guy in the middle. middle yeah, he's the common yeah. point in the in the story. So Gunnar. Gunnar. Yeah. But what is his real name? Gunnar Eyet. 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 Yeah. Yeah. It's a very complicated, like any Icelandic name. Nobody can pronounce it except the. Uh, <laughs> they, but they probably should have named him G E Gunnar Eyet, like G E Smith. <laughs> Would have been easier. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. So I wanted to have you here today because you know to talk a little bit about your journey. It's quite an interesting thing. I mean, as you mentioned, you're born back in in Seattle in the, in the U.S. and and then you made your way somehow through very random decisions and 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 career moves into Prague to the Czech Republic where you live today. And then, um, yeah, you 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 did some interesting stuff there, business wise. But then, yeah, you turned your focus back to the passion, which was music. Um, and so, I wanted to kind of talk about all of this stuff today with you. Um, but if we tell you, yeah, if we go back, as you said, you know, or I said as well, that you, you're born in in Seattle, in and and that's on the west coast, kind of. Yeah, yeah. I was actually born in Olympia, mm. <clears throat> which is about an hour, a little over an hour south of Seattle. So mm. I grew up there, and then I lived in Seattle um, for 14 years before coming to Europe. Mm. Yeah, so I'm from the Pacific Northwest, Seattle area, and then living there. Yeah. And what kind of, what, what's different about that area than if you take, I don't know, like 
New York or yeah. East Coast or I mean, is it more nature? Yeah, you're you're in. Um, I guess we're known for the rain, mm. you know. But it's also with the rain comes the beauty, right? Mm. You've but you've got the North Cascades running up and down the coast, just inland. So you've got skiing, you've got uh, mountain climbing, and then you have the sea for sailing, swimming, whatever it is you like to do. <clears throat> so there's a lot uh, of everything, mm. and you do get you get decent seasons, but nothing's extreme, and you do get a fair amount of rain. Um, however, it's a lot less than we talk about, mm. you know, because we don't. You grow apples there. Lots of apples on the mm. eastern side of the state, which is a lot hotter. Yeah. So once you go east inland, then you, you cross the North Cascades and then it's hot. Uh-huh. It's like the summers are baking. They've got you know farming, wine production, everything, because the temperature is completely different. Long, hot summers mm-hmm. as opposed to kind of short, rainy summers on the west coast. Uh-huh. And what kind of uh, people are you from? I mean, is it a big family or? or Yeah, yeah. Well, a a mix like most Americans, Mm. you know. So I've got Irish on my mom's side, French on my mom's side, uh, on my father's side, American Indian. Mm. um, And, you know, have three sisters. And, uh, yeah, so it's an interesting upbringing. You know, you've got the the French, the Irish, a little bit of mix, and then mixed with the American Indian um, growing up. Mm. You know, that was always interesting. And how is the, how is the, how is that native or, or the American Indian? How how is that like? Um, is that I don't know. Is that like visible somehow? In in if you look back at your family, can you can you see that somehow? You know, like is there are there some traditions or some habits or cultural things? Yeah, I mean, through my dad, um, I learned lots of lessons. You learn you know, about the culture itself. But Mm. we, to be super clear, we didn't ever live on the reservation. My father had left that when he was like 15, had gone to to university on athletic scholarships and had a whole life outside of that. But although he still worked with the Indian community, Mm. uh, did a lot of amazing things defending Indian rights in the United States, uh, to this day is still highly involved in that. Um, And so I got to see, I guess growing up, there was a great example of someone who, when when they were passionate about something, they just went for it. They did things that nobody else had done or could do just through pure belief. Mm. You know, and they they say that a lot of uh, that, a lot about entrepreneurs, you know, they they can will things to happen um, because they just so believe in it and they make it happen, you know, hell or high water. And that he was a lot like that Mm. with uh, tribal communities and business, Mm. you know, started tons of businesses, whether it was from a gas station to a golf resort, to a casino, to a fisheries, the Northwest Indian Fisheries Commission, to like huge things Mm. that transpired that changed a lot of people's lives. So that was, I guess, probably one of the most impactful things I got to see Mm. and was probably still part of the reason I was able to jump around and be an entrepreneur. Mm. But but, but, but from a, I don't know, I mean, from like a family and tradition and food, perspective or something like this is that is there like a american indian i don't know it's cuisine or, or you know do, do you know what i mean like yeah yeah i do a lot of like a lot of the type of baking and um you know cooking on the campfire or under the underground with the stones and things like that which are pretty common throughout throughout the pacific northwest and the united states really um but from I, that influence then or, or, yeah uh-huh. yeah but nothing that was like we did on a consistent basis mm you know, um, potatoes and corn and all that, but that's part of the, that's part of their gift to the yeah, American yeah, lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, if, yeah, yeah. if you, yeah, yeah. there's a great book called Indian Giver that is really goes through all the influences and foods and culture and things that 
the American Indian gave to the American culture that gets highly overlooked. Mm. Um, and there's plenty of other things like that too. So I guess we could always appreciate it because it was there. And I think if people are really awake, but you know, that was a, a nation or a culture that was pretty much 98% extinct. Mm-hmm. Right. So even though the, the settlers, so to speak, the white guys tried to completely annihilate the American Indian, they, they did survive and it was pretty hard. Um, and that now they're now today, it's a whole nother topic, how they're coming back. Uh, yeah, they're yeah, buying yeah. back the reservations. They've got thriving businesses, uh, and they're becoming powerful, mm. very powerful again, which I applaud. Couldn't be prouder. And my dad's been a big part of that. So, you know, that's, uh, that's always something in the back of your mind. Mm. But, but uh, is this celebrated? I mean, did, did you celebrate those roots in your household? I mean, like, was it like, um, I don't know, or, or or people just don't care because you know America is such a melting pot. I mean, like yeah. you say on your mom's side, you have French and uh, what uh, Irish, Irish, German, and, uh, and German, German as well. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. three that's three cultures already there. And, yeah. and, and yeah. does it actually matter? I mean, <clears> when you're born in Olympia, south of or close to Seattle, does it do people actually care about this? They do, they do, uh-huh. especially when when I was younger, because the the Maybe the gap is, and people's awareness has increased and the gap's gotten a little smaller, but it's still there today. Mm-hmm. And it was really there back then. There was a lot of prejudices, you know, out there. And I think I couldn't even imagine, you know, how that would be growing up, uh, you know, for my dad. Um, but he always, you know, kept a stiff upper lip. It helps that he's six foot, was six foot five and 240 pounds. And (laughs) you want to fuck with him? Well, probably not really. Right. (laughs) So that that was probably helpful. But at the end of the day, he, he was always incredibly mature about it. Mm. Uh, Didn't let it impact our lives at all. Mm. Um, So it was great growing up. You know, Mm. he was always around. He was, you know, and we did understand because all of, you know, all of our relatives on his side, you know, we knew them all. They're very close. Um, And so you saw the influences, um, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And for, as a kid growing up and being around as much as we were, um, it was just, that's what you thought life was. So mm-hmm. there, you can't really say, oh, this is unusual or not unusual. You know, I just remember- Yeah, it was just was, the reality that you were in somehow. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and I, I guess one of the main things I, I also take away, other than the just drive and the entrepreneurship, is really just that calm, that like you're you're on this planet you're part of an ecosystem so i remember even remember as a child going down to the river and wanting to jump in the in the water and climb the trees and everything but it was always you can but you have to be quiet mm-hmm. you can't scream and yell and act like hooligans you have mm-hmm. to respect the spirits and the people around you and whatever's around you what's part of this ecosystem and so that was it was never like sat down and you were told this it was just it's applied. there yeah yeah like hey you're part of this ecosystem and you need to respect it and so don't run around like a maniac and mm. and be quiet and have fun you know the religions were very different mm. you know the shaker church and stuff which we didn't really get exposed to much mm. at all mm. um but uh you just knew it was there yeah yeah it's kind of like i mean i i know it's 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 different but still i mean it's the native americans or the american indian they very much lived in harmony with their environment. I mean, you read books about their culture and history. It's very much about yeah. uh, never overdoing anything. They never, I don't know, they, they, they appreciated what they had, so they would never take advantage of it. And, and I don't know, they probably didn't have capitalism in, in their culture, you know, like they, they never <laughs> exploited anything. But it actually, it, 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 when you're saying this, it kind of makes me think back to Iceland because... Um, as a kid, I used to work in a farm, and and 
And it was very much the same, you know, respect the land, respect the animals, respect the nature and the water and, and everything because it's, 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 this is what keeps us alive. This is, you know, this is how we can function here, you know? Yeah. And you can't go too far because then you're, you're, you know, you're going to ruin it, you know? Uh, yeah, and you're, you, you are where we are today. Yeah. With climate change and global warming. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, but it, it's... it's uh, yeah. It, it, it's obvious that, you know, like, yeah, maybe we have taken certain things too far, you know, but uh, we'll see. Um, but you said, so you had three sisters, two sisters, yeah. you three kids. Yeah. And uh, they're older than you or, or? They're both younger. One is five years younger and one is uh, about 30 years younger. Uh -huh. I was, well, no, maybe not 30, maybe 25. Because she was born when I was in college. Uh-huh. So one sister is five years younger. Uh, she's an ear, throat, and nose specialist out of New York. And uh, my youngest sister is uh, a dentist. And how, how so, so they're both doctors? Yeah. Or, yeah, medical yeah. experts. And, and married to doctors, I think, too. I don't know. can't yeah. remember. And, and so you, <laughs> were, sort of you, were you supposed to become a doctor? As a, as a no, no, no. I, I never knew what I wanted to do when I grew up. To this day, I don't exactly know. Mm. So, no, I was... Uh, I did a lot of different things growing up and, you know, whether you know, from the very beginning to where I am today, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Mm. Um, but I, I didn't have that, that compass mm. that, that some people have. There was no, and there was no pressure on you to become anything specific or, or, or do anything specific. No, I think it was more do something, mm. make up your mind and then do it well. Mm -hmm. Right. So there was no pressure. Yeah. To become a lawyer or a doctor. You know. mm. And, uh, were you a good kid? Well behaved? No, no. <laughs> Up until like third grade, I was a holy terror. You know, I had all those things that uh, that children have when they're like uh, hyperactive and they can't focus and they just run around doing crazy stuff and never listening. I was probably the poster child for that until I was in like the second or third grade. Mm. Like I think I, hold, I held the record for being sent to the principal's office in the first grade. So in when the that's school. when you're six, 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 <laughs> like six seven. seven. Yeah. Yeah. But there was no malice there. Mm. And uh, the, I, they didn't put me on any drugs or anything. You just outgrew it. Mm. You know, I'm still a little bit high strung, but that's a whole different level. Right. And I know so many guys now that were put on Ritalin and putting on all, put mm. on all these drugs and they're still coming down off it, looking for alternatives and wondered, why did I feel high every day when I went to school? Because these drugs doctors were prescribing to keep them calm. Mm. You know, and it just space them out and make them docile. Mm. Um, and, and that was so never, in your case, never even never. I don't considered? Even, no, no, not sure if they even knew of it. Um, but I think my parents would not have allowed it anyway. Mm. Like, he's a kid, he's going to grow out of it. Mm. Right? If he doesn't, he'll end up in prison. Well, okay, you can control him there, right? But, <laughs> of course, I hope grew it. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but... Uh, but in, in, in American culture, I mean, in general, you have a, a huge tendency to use medicine. I mean, chemical medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Well beyond belief, really. Mm. Yeah. They, it's so funny that they never look at your food and what, you, what yeah. you put into your body as maybe being a cause of some of the things that you're doing or mm. some of the reactions you're having or the hyperactivity. Um, and it isn't until they've... they've uh, giving you every drug under the planet on the planet to try to remedy the problem that they go back to, Oh, it's food or it's, you know, it can be lifestyle chemical, or, yeah, lifestyle, yeah. but it can be yeah. chemical imbalances, mm. but oftentimes it's just what you eat. It's what you mm. put in your body. So can't say that all the time, but it, yeah, it's a, 
unlike Europe and especially the like East, like India and, and Bhutan and you know areas like that, where they look at your food as your medicine mm. and they're looking at preventing problems mm. before they happen, as opposed to oh, this is your problem, so take these. You know, here's seven prescriptions. You can just put them on your bathroom counter. I want yeah. you to take two of those every day, and then you find you're just you know you're a nutcase after. Yeah, that. and you're you're fucking up your kidneys and liver and uh, every or stomach and whatever. Yeah. Not only the sun will need to rise And, and what about music, Jay? I mean, you, you, th- th- like when I when I was looking through your bio, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, I can see that you know there's always somehow been involved in music. Was that something that you got from from home? Yeah, um, my parents were always really supportive and wanted you to learn something musically. Uh, it was generally generally in the form of a musical instrument. Mm. Um, my father is a great singer, natural, just can belt out, you name it. It's just like Sinatra or even a modern pop song, and it just sounds like he's been singing his whole life. Uh-huh. Uh, my sister inherited that. She's got a great voice as well. Um, I less so. I have to work a lot harder. Um, but that started like in elementary school with just symphonic band playing the trumpet, you know, mm-hmm. and then going into junior high. And then high school, from the time I was a freshman, I was in the jazz band. Mm-hmm. So learning a lot of theory, a lot of jazz. Um, I was never any good at it. I'm not even sure. I, I barely learned how to read music. I did everything by ear. I could just fake my way through it. I didn't know jack about music theory, mm. but I could fake it because I had a good ear, mm-hmm. right? And so some people have good theory and a good ear, and they and they practice and they're great at it. And some can do some can do both. Some can do just the theory, mm. and they know the notes. Other people can just hear it in their ear. It's nice to have a little bit of both, but I never yeah. I never had the latter. So. And that's always on a trumpet or, or, or... I always played the trumpet, but also in high school, me and my friend Jeff, we got into guitars. Uh-huh. So he had a, a 70, early 70s Gibson Les Paul, black, awesome. I had a, um, believe it or not, an Ibanez double neck because I love Jimmy Page. <laughs> yeah. That lasted about a month and then I traded it in for, I think, an Ibanez hollow body because it's just completely impractical to have a this double, neck, double yeah. neck guitar yeah. and you're just jamming. <laughs> Um, so we had a lot of fun. Used to, our parents used to yell at us a lot because the music was too loud. And, and why did you, I mean, what was it about music that you liked? I mean, what, what, what was that? Just the creative nature of it, right? It's just uh, music is meditation, mm. right? It's uh, you have to focus on one thing mm. and you practice it and you practice it until it sounds really good. Yeah. You know, back then it was every kid knew how to play Stairway to Heaven. And I think in the 80s or 90s, it was Guns N' Roses, some tune by Guns N' Roses, right? So there's always the, the anthems mm. that you learned back mm. there. And so that just was, was I think, an early form of meditation, really, mm. and inspiration and creativity. And, and, and I guess also a great way to meet girls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I never thought about that then. I was like nine. <laughs> but, uh, no, but you no, know, but later, later. later on, you know, when you're 13, 14, you must yeah. be great to have a band or... We never made it that far. Well, in the band, yeah. So it's the opposite for us because we were in the jazz band. Yeah, that's about as sexy yeah. as it gets. Yeah, yeah, like, hey, those guys can do those weird solos that you get tired of in about twenty-five seconds because it's you know just all notes and yeah. like, great, you know how to do scales. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> um, but the guys in the yeah, but there were some guys in the jazz band mm. that were bass players, drummers, and um, guitarists that then had their own bands. I, I guess the most notable was. Barrett Martin from the Screaming Trees. He played uh-huh. in the jazz band, 
played drums uh, with us. And he was this, you know, young kid and really talented, but picked it up there and learned it and was so good at it. He just devoured it. And he's still a professional percussionist. He's a doctorate in percussion, I think, mm. uh, maybe a little bit like Neil Pert from Rush. But he, uh, he if you go follow, um, follow him now, he's just working with everybody under the sun and just doing albums and art. Uh-huh. You know, and he played on that famous song with Screaming Trees, uh, I Nearly... Nearly Lost You. Yeah, he's in the video. You. Yeah, Barrett Martin. Wow. Follow Barrett. Oh, that's cool. If you can. He's on Instagram. Yeah. And, but, but um, was that like, was there ever an option that, that music would become like you would go and study it or, you know, that, that, that would be the thing? It's funny. It never even occurred to me to study music like out of high school. Mm. So I'll just go, you know, go get a business degree, do whatever uh, you need to do. Um, so it never... Get a it, real job. Yeah, get a real job. But during college, I, I ran into this guy named... Todd Robbins, TR, and he uh, he could mix music. Like he had a little, he he had he had started a little club in Pullman, Washington, called Panic City. And I was kind of like I was kind of liked music and stuff, but like dance music, like mm. EDM type stuff. But when I heard the DJs mixing the music and remixing the music live on turntables, I just was mesmerized. Like, how on earth do they do that, right? Mm. Can and you so move the mic a little bit under you? Like, yeah, yeah, twist oh, yeah. it like this. Big difference, yeah. Cool. There we go. Yeah, cool. so so you you see this DJ? Mixing. I just started to get yeah, I started to get exposed to it, mm. and then that was late in in my college years. And then uh, is that I, like dan- more like dance music? Yeah, dance music. And back then, it was kind of pre house, kind of what well, kind of house music, dance music, industrial was starting to come on the scene, like mm. Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails, and stuff uh-huh. like that. Knights of Reb, Front Two Four Two, all that stuff, and so. I basically, as any DJ back then will do, you can't afford, you know, Technic 1200s or $400 each and a mixing board. So you, you get these little Sony home turntables that have a pitch control mm. and you start teaching yourself how to do beat matching because it's all manual. Today mm. it's all electronic. You push beat match and it's all done for you, right? Mm. But back then you had to get the, the two discs moving at the same speed and cue them up and do everything at the same time. Mm. So that was really interesting. So, you know, after a year of doing that in my bedroom, then uh, I started doing it live in Seattle. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of that that music promotion and um, proper DJing. You know, mm-hmm. I, I worked at three clubs. Uh, one was most notably was the Weathered Wall for five, almost five years. Um, I basically went in and said, look, I'll take every Saturday night. I know it could be your busiest night, but you guys aren't crushing it. And it's a great club, but you're not able to do the promotion properly. So I said, I'll take Saturdays and I'll, you take the bar, I take the door. And I'll so do you all, the pro- all the promotion. Uh-huh. I did all the promotion and we had lines out the door around the block for mm. years. Um, but I paid the dancers because we were one of the first clubs that had dancers in cages. We'd bring people from Vegas, mm. dance professional dancers with all the Feathers and garb and like but go-go it was, dancers and yeah, oh, that's yeah, cool. proper. But it was still very underground. There was no pop music um, at all. This was all progressive underground dance music. Because um, also at the same time, I had a job at the Underground Dance Music, which was the name of the the uh, the store on Capitol Hill in Seattle that I worked at. So I could get access to all the best vinyl being pressed out. I'd be the first to hear it in Seattle. I'd of course order enough for me and then some of my friends, but I got to listen to a lot of music and have access to, which was, which was super key, mm. you know? And then we started, uh, TR went into throwing rave parties. So I was playing at those and participating in that. And so this is when you were what, like 
15, 14? No, no, I'm just out of college. Okay, so you're 18, 19. 19, 20, uh -huh. 21. And that's also... And, and the college was <coughs> business. Yeah, I got a business degree with an emphasis on hotel and restaurant administration, which is basically a business degree with an emphasis on hospitality, yeah. entertainment, hotel, restaurant, you know, food. And, and, the, and you didn't want to do anything with that. You just deep dived into the DJing and... and yeah, because uh, yeah, I, I love... I love hospitality, food, wine. I love all that stuff. But to work in that industry is tough. Mm. You know, while everyone else is playing, you're working. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes a bit of a subculture on its own. Um, so I didn't go that direction. I just went to a different subculture. I went to music and DJing, which starts at 8 and goes until 3 in the morning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so probably worse. But not every night of the week. Mm -hmm. But I, I worked three days, three nights a week, and then did promotion as, as well, you know, during the day and in the evenings that I wasn't working which meant posters on telephone poles, flyers on cars, interviews on you know, radio spots, anything and everything, uh, putting out mixtapes that you recorded the night before at the gig, you know, and selling them at the record store and just promotion, promotion, promotion. Um, but that, and then that's when, you know, that was right in the middle of the wholesale grunge scene. Yeah, because I wanted to ask and you that. That was, must yeah. have been, that, that's very a contrast though, because, you know, if you have on one hand this kind of pre-house techno music and then you have the grunge that is yeah. i don't know s super raw somehow yeah. and very emotional yeah. and and very yeah i don't know trist or how to say it's sad in some way yeah well it's a, the whole the whole kind of gr story i i like to call it the seattle sound i don't i grunge was a label that was given it by the newspapers mm. and by the by the by the press so it's really the sound that came out of seattle mm. which was really just post punk mm. you know if you listen to the really early Seattle bands, they sound, they were just hardcore, like the Melvins, you know, and just the list is huge. Um, and those were the ones that influenced. And then, then, of course, you had Nirvana, you had Pearl Jam, and we can talk about all those stories with them, like Mad. Mm. Um, but it was a great and fertile landscape because when you're in music, you're in music. Mm. Like my roommate w was a promoter as well, and his girlfriend was a, a talent scout for Sony Music. You know, so you're just always absorbed in music and it didn't matter what kind of music because I still had guitar. I still love rock and I love that sound. So it was if you weren't, you know, spinning records somewhere, you're probably going out to see a show at the Crocodile or Rock Candy or mm -hmm. Moore's Moroccan Cafe or any of these these general places that were popular and seeing bands most usually before they before they got big. Like what bands did you see, for example, out of those? Well, definitely Nirvana. Definitely Pearl Jam, but even before that, when they were Mother Love Bone, mm -hmm. um, or even before that, when they were Green River, various offshoots of that. Yeah, yeah. Whole, they, that, that, they uh, are. yeah, the Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, all, all these are yeah. very kind of connected bands. Yeah, and so, yeah, I remember seeing Soundgarden at a skating rink, Yeah, you know, and Nirvana in a small club that would hold 60 people, uh -huh. you know, but... They were gigging all the time. All the bands were working really hard, and that's how they got. Some of them got really, really good. Mm. Practice, practice, practice on stage, live, and uh, crazy. You know, being nuts. Um, but, yeah. But this, um, I mean, this. I've, I've, I've thought about it, and I haven't found the answers. I tried looking for them. Actually, I'm, I've always been curious. Why Seattle? Why that time? Mm-hmm. And and I, w I was you know because and it because it was such a game changer. I had this uh, guy here, Jeff Tyson, a guitar guy on 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 my one of my previous episodes, and he was in a 
He was in a band that was, you know, making an album and they took fucking six years making that album and during those six years Nirvana came and then and nobody wanted their music anymore because it yeah. just went out of fashion faster than a yeah. nun runs out of a, a porn store, you know? <laughs> and 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 I'm I'm and then it really made me think, what what was it? Because it must have been something that created this atmosphere or something. Yeah, yeah. Well I think Seattle has always been a hub for original music. Mm. It was long before the title grunge or, you know, the Seattle sound came into fruition. There were bands playing in all these clubs long before that, their own original music, uh, all genres. They were, there was, you could go see funk blues. You go to pioneer square, which is right in the center of the old city, all blues. Mm. Right. And then, then you, you just go out from there and you'd find the rock clubs, Blues clubs, uh, sorry, funk. I mean, there's I can name so many different genres that were being played. But I think when you look at the the weather, how mm. dreary it is, and like a lot of bands, like Nirvana, they came from like Aberdeen. They came from up north. Mm. They lived in Olympia for a long time. They didn't. They're, everyone's oh, they're from Seattle. Well, not really. Um, but that's where the hub was, right? That's the middle. That's kind of the ecosystem. And so y- you look at just. It's cloudy, overcast, a bit depressing, and lots of punk, lots of hard, hard, not metal, not hairband type stuff, but just traditional loud raging guitars with guys screaming in the mic. Some coherently, some not. Um, and a lot of women too, like L7 and some of the Seven Year Bitch, like amazing female bands too. Um, and so that's what you started to see. So that was every day for us. And we were wearing flannel shirts because it's logging, it's trees, it's, that's, that's the garb. And, that, and you're wearing the mini layers because one day it's going to rain. And in one day it could do three different things. Yeah. So you had layers. You had the flannel shirt, the sweater, and that's when the fashion you know, started to, the grunge fashion, which followed the music. Mm. So a lot of that was just somebody stumbled in and said, hey, these, there's some good bands here. Yeah, somebody put a stamp on it somehow. <laughs> somebody put a stamp on it. and mm. they, But they... It's more by almost by circumstance because it's what we did. Mm. It was every day for us. Then all of a sudden, oh, now someone's getting some, you know, I think Nirvana signed to, to Epic or Polygram. And then pretty soon, you know, Pearl Jam, you know, they were Mother Love Bone. Andy died. The lead singer died of a heroin overdose. Mm. They looked for some time for a new lead singer, which eventually became Eddie Vedder. And he's from L.A., um, and so that's the Pearl Jam, you know, today, but that wasn't easy for them either. They had to transition that they weren't accepted right away because Eddie was from LA and not from the Pacific Northwest. People get over that real, real fast. Cause he's such an incredible vocalist and the band was amazing. Right. Mm. But that first album was completely written by, you know, Mike McCready and the rest of the members of the band. And then Eddie got a hold of it and he like a rock opera, he just, <clears throat> you know, in within a few days, at least this is what his story was he, he wrote. And if you look at how those songs are connected and stuff, you can kind of feel like that was kind of the, the, the method. Mm. Um, but you take a incredible musicians, you put them together and you get that kind of magic. And mm. they're still, I don't know. I look at them as the, the new, you know, Pink Floyd or the dead, really the new dead. Cause they've got such a following. They can come to Prague, yeah, yeah. you know, what, and fill, 30 years after the 90s yeah. and fill yeah. a stadium every yeah. time. So, yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. But, uh, but, but, but you mentioned heroin. There was a lot of drugs there. I mean, there, yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and, and so, so basically, what you're describing is a very depressive, unreliable environment yeah. with a lot of other changes. It sounds a little bit like Iceland, where I'm from, but we don't <laughs> yeah. have heroin. I don't know. Maybe it's too expensive or it's too far away or something. You're lucky. But, uh, but th- that was a, 
I mean that that that's always kind of been uh, how do you say like uh, one of the demons of of that music or that yeah. area, right? Yeah, yeah, a lot of deaths, some of which you know, whether it be Lane Staley, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, or it. But there's a lot more underneath that mm. of that culture, and a lot of guys used to shoot it. They also used to smoke it. You could walk into a club and you'd smell kind of like hazelnuts, and you'd be like, "Yeah, okay, someone's smoking heroin." Uh, a lot of addiction. I remember. When I was DJing, we used to mix the bands with the DJing and stuff, and we'd I'd have live drummers and stuff. And I remember the drummer from Sky Crazy Mary was drumming and stuff, and he was a recovered heroin addict. Mm. Couldn't get Ben, couldn't get him near. Like, if if this party started going sideways, sideways Ben, let's go. You know, because mm. it was just it's too much of a temptation. But why is this? A, why is why is heroin such a big problem in that area? Is that is it the same yeah. thing as that creates all the music? Yeah. Yeah, it's just the dark, the, the the dark, the the rain. Mm. Uh, the de- it's a little bit depressive, depressing. I think Finland and Seattle have maybe the highest suicide rates on the planet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But um, yeah, yeah, that's it, it has a certain dark undertow, mm. and that that showed in the music. Again, it's a they're very working man. A lot of loggers working in the trees. Uh, some manufacturing, you know, Boeing's there, AT and T's there, mm. Microsoft's there. So it quickly became tech hubs as well. But in the '80s and '90s, it was still fairly low key. Mm. Any any favorite band that out there? I mean, like if you if you uh, that you saw that that you like, is there some? Because you know, I I like all these bands. Alice yeah, Chains, Pearl Jam, sure. obviously. Yeah. I mean, and and uh, <clears throat> and I still remember where I was when I heard "Smells Like Teen Spirit" for the first <laughs> time, uh, and I remember on what's there. Out of thirty-five stairs down in a nightclub, I remember in which stair I was when I heard that song. You know, it was such a mesmerizing moment. You know, yeah, yeah. But was there was there something that you like? Were, I don't know. When you look back, is it some like wow moment where you heard something or saw some some band live? Yeah, well, it, probably for for me and probably most of us, it wasn't like an aha moment because it was there because it was always part of the scene. It was just punk rock, right? But I think. Kurt Cobain with Nirvana turned it into pop, right? Or main, uh, mainstream. Mainstream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it was still the hard riffs. It was still, but he admitted it himself. I'm writing candy rock songs, pop, love mm-hmm. it. Was always conflicted whether he wanted to be a rock star or not, right? But he was, whether he liked it or not. Um, and so, yeah, there wasn't the aha moment, but you could see it coming Um, Soundgarden really was one of the first before Nirvana and everything that really was making it, and they had so many influences that was not necessarily grunge. Mm. You know, if you look, listen yeah, to their lyrics and, like and Black Hole yeah. Sun uh, and everything, I mean, there's there's Ozzy in there, there's Zeppelin in yeah. there, there's just so much. Um, I remember reading something that like when David Grohl heard you know, Black Hole Sun, he was just blown away, like this may be the next rock anthem, which it kind of was, mm. right? Um, and so. I never thought of Chris Cornell and Soundgarden as being grunge. I thought they were much bigger than that. Mm. But then you had Nirvana and you had the Melvins and you had L7, mm. even Sonic Youth out of New York. They they played right in that same arena with their own style. Um, and then you had, you know, bands from all over Candlebox. I mean, the list is huge. Mm. Um, and so that's, and then it started to attract. So what happened was when Seattle, okay, this is our ordinary day, but then people started coming from all over the country, musicians from Wisconsin, from California, from New York, saying this is the, the new scene. So you got this huge influx. Because mm. you're right, from one day to the next, it killed the hair band. Mm. Bon Jovi, Bon Jovi, yeah, who? Yeah, right? Yeah. Twisted Sister, what? Yeah. Who? 
<laughs> you know, it just overnight, those guys went from filling stadiums to riding Greyhounds, you know, and staying in Motel 6, uh, you know, because it was so transformative. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. I, I, I even became, I, I became ashamed of, of being an Iron Maiden fan during this time, you know, which had been my band, you know, and then of yeah. course Guns N' Roses and all the hair metal yeah. came. And then, then comes Nirvana and you're just like, Iron Maiden. No, never. And, they, <laughs> yeah. and they kind of went out of fashion for like 10, 10, 15 years. And this killed a lot of bands. I mean, yeah. a lot of bands tried to copy grunts or become grunts or something. They, and they all failed miserably because no. it wasn't original. It's a different animal. The chord structures are different. Yeah. They're very dark. They're very minor. The riffs, the rhythms, it had to be something you grew up with yeah, kind yeah. of. Because yeah. even it wasn't even just solid punk. But Exactly. Yeah. I remember so, like Blue Oyster Cult, a friend of mine in Minnesota rented... Blue Oyster Cult to play at their wedding for six thousand dollars. Yeah. <laughs> have, have they have you know songs that have been played twelve million times on yeah. on, on Spotify? You know, yeah. don't fear the reaper or yeah. Uh, yeah. And they're playing at a wedding. I'm like, yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. Um, so you spent you said this this time of your life when you're DJing, promoting, and 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 kind of in the music scene after college. That's what ten years. Ten, ten yeah, years. over ten years. Yeah. How, how did your, and I like, I don't know, your sister was five years younger, so she's becoming a doctor, I guess. Yeah, she was still in university and then moving to she's Arizona. She's moving on in life and, uh, yeah, and the, yeah. the son is slacking around in music. Yeah, yeah, I was pretty, pretty much that. My mother was always super supportive, wanted to hear all my mixtapes and the music. And if she'd been a little younger, she'd probably, you know, come and see me, you know, spin for thousands of people, which we often did. Mm. But um, my dad, not so much. I don't think we ever talked about it. He, it wasn't something that uh, that he thought was a, a real thing, uh, even though I was. But you paid successful. your bills and you did your own thing, Com- and completely. We'd throw one big party a month, and then with the club stuff, more than paid my bills. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Um, but it, they were not against it, though, or he wasn't against no, it. He no, just didn't. He was indifferent. Wasn't in, yeah, indifferent is a probably word. We didn't really chat about it much because oh. it wasn't really on the radar. My mom was like loving it. She was like, "Yeah, this is the best. Let's go send me another tape," you know. Yeah. But that's you know that's that's fathers and sons. That's normal, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it was good. Um, but then, yeah, but then as you, then after I after being in it for a while, I said, "Okay, this is a young man's game. Unless I'm in a rock band and I'm touring, you know, I can't be a. I, I don't want to be a DJ when I'm 55. Mm-hmm. You know, spinning underground clubs. You know, that can be anywhere from 60 people to a couple thousand people but still mm. okay that's fine and, and i had built you know my 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 dj name was dj soma i'd built a following i could fill a club whatever but you know at the end of the day you uh it got very very competitive and i it got very private to like everyone was hiding putting stickers on their record labels and so no one could see what you're playing when you're playing it when i was the opposite i'd like yeah, here, have this, have that. I'll give them the names. Yeah, if you want to order it, I'll get it for you at the record store, whatever. So I was always promoting, but I was always open because music is an open thing. Mm. And so that kind of turned me off a lot where like everything was so competitive and all the DJs, you know, they were just clawing their way to the top and stepping on each other's necks to get there. So um, I started looking to do something else while at the same time. So I started to kind of fade into technology and look at technology um, opportunities ended up working for um, a small mobile operator. Like what, when is this? What, what, what years are these? God, I'm trying to think. Ninety five, six, seven. 
Yeah, yeah, 94, 5, 6, 7. So that's yeah. that when kind of mobile is in its infancy, you know, it's kind yeah. of starting, right? Yeah, yeah. So the first mobile networks are going up in the U.S. They'd been in the Europe for a little while, but there's there are like, oh, you're getting, like in the U.S. it was all under one brand called Cellular One, mm. right? And so there was one mobile operator, and then there was two. So there was AT&T had one mobile network, and then Cellular One, the brand, you know, was there, but it was owned by a whole, but the whole network in the U.S. was owned by like 20 different operators. They were just using one, one, uh, brand. one brand. And so then, then they started auctioning off additional frequencies. Some like Verizon came in, you know, other, other mobile operators came in, Nextel, et cetera. And that also started happening in, in Europe. So I, just before that, and I remember my dad saying, you should, if, if you've got an opportunity in mobile, take it. Cause this is like the railroad. Like it's going to go everywhere. Rush. It's like, this is the next big thing. Um, and so I did, I went to work for a small mobile company, which later grew to have a whole, a, a global, I mean, have a U.S. wide network called voice stream, which we, which went public. And I was part of that team just working for the guys. I was never a top executive, but I was part of that mix. And so that's what showed me, my God, you can take something small and turn it into something massive. Right. So we went public on the NASDAQ. And then two years later, after that, I came to Europe to deploy networks but but, um, but 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 in that voice stream, what, what because you say you're not one of the top executives, but like what what did you bring to the table in a company like that? Yeah, so I was lucky that I got in very very early, mm. um, and worked. I worked for so I had I was like the guy you know just he, yeah college degree, but had been doing all this other stuff, and they kind of liked that diversity. But I knew how to build things. I knew how to. I had determination. I knew how to you know. If I had a problem, how to fix it, right? Mm. And so I must have had seven interviews and I ended up working for directly for as kind of an assistant to the general counsel, the head of engineering, and the head of market rollouts. Mm -hmm. So it uh so I just got a wide view of the whole business. Yeah. Um when so I was doing anything and everything. And I think it kind of goes back to the reason I was successful is because it goes back to that determination, right? You can do anything. And if, you do, if you're not sure, well, ask. If you need help, get help, right? But don't sit at your desk and say, shit, this is hard, mm. you know? And so you become known as a problem solver. And so pretty soon I very quickly became a go-to. Whenever needed, someone needed anything, even if it wasn't even in those departments, they'd be like, hey, Jared, what do you think? Can you take this on? I'm like, yeah, sure. And so for me, it was just because I wanted to learn. Like, this is cool. Yeah, I'll try it. Yeah, whatever. I have no freaking idea what it is. What is an environmental impact statement study? How do you do that? Well, I don't know. I'll go figure it out. I'll go talk to somebody, whatever. So I got given lots of projects. And the reason that was, and this came back to me, and I, I try to instill this in my children, is just be really, whatever it is you decide to do, be really freaking good at it, right? Mm. And so that doesn't mean you're going to do everything right, but it means if someone gives you something, they're comfortable, it's going to get done. It's going to get done on time. And if it isn't, you're going to tell them about it and you're going to ask for their help. That's all they asked. And that's what, that was my only goal for every performance review, for every single thing. Every one of my bosses just said, yeah, yeah, you're just the go-to guy. You always get it done. And if you have a problem, you tell us so there's no surprises. Just keep doing that. And I had six promotions in six years, mm -hmm. you know, and that, that, that one universal, those traits are what should drive every human on earth when it comes to their work life mm. and maybe everything else too but that that just defines success to me that defines success mm. and then i i guess the, you know because it's it's also has helped that 
It's a booming industry. I mean, you oh, see, you, you you feel that you're part of something exciting that is happening, right? Yeah, yeah. And and you know the always the, changing, always growing. Yeah, and people are adapting, or what's it called? You're onboarding, evolving, and yeah, and, yeah, and, bringing you know, on new people. Yeah, yeah. And, and and you know you're getting users ad- adapting to your. Or what's what the fuck? Yeah, is it customers. Called? Yeah, customers are taking on your product. They're, Coming they're, on board. Yeah, getting and, mobile phones. Yeah. You know, remember the first mobile phone was yeah, like a was, brick. Yeah, even had a suitcase with yeah, it. You know. Yeah. I was like, ah, I didn't even have a mobile phone. And I worked for a mobile company for two years before they made me get one. I kind of want one of those things. What do I, and then you can get me anytime. And then once I had one, you're addicted. And that's what happened to everyone. Yeah. I guess that's part of the business model, but uh, yeah. um, So that from, from that, you, you kind of get into Europe, right? You, you went into the UK to, or. Well, I went, so I was, uh, I was the, when I left voice stream, after we went public, it was like a year and a half after we went public. I didn't, I, some guys that had worked for me deploying the mobile networks around the U.S. had come to Prague to work on what was then Radio Mobile. Uh-huh. And they had just been awarded a license and they were responsible for deploying the network. And they had big penalties if they didn't get it done on time. Uh-huh. And they were not getting it done on time. And so these guys that worked for me previously came and were like, hey, Jared, you want to come? Maybe you can help us figure out what's going wrong, uh, help us to accelerate the, the builds and the, the radio planning and the construction and the permitting and everything. Because it's, it's different countries, but there's still a lot of regulation. It's a lot of similarities. And so they said, would you just come for six months uh, as a consultant on a day rate? And I'm like, went to my bosses at, at VoiceStream and said, hey, this is a great opportunity. Prague in 1997, you know, it seems like a place in time where you don't want to miss and it'd be really cool to go check it out. And they're like, yeah, come back in six months. We'll have a job for you. Don't even worry about it. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll see you then. And so that's exactly what I did. And then like every other expat I've ever met, like I went for six months or I went for three weeks. Oh, and I've been here for 25 years. Yeah. yeah. Right? I came in for three months, 12 <laughs> years later, I'm here. Yeah, exactly. And, and but, but, but wait, so <clears throat> did you know anything about Prague at that time? I mean, did you have any idea what you were getting yourself into? Zero. Uh-huh. But I had three friends that were here mm. um, that I trusted. And they were like, look, you just got to come. It's a time and place. And it'll never be like this ever again. So you need to, you need to experience it and get on a plane. And I did. Mm. I had a job. I had a signed contract. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. I was yeah. So flung- new, yeah, I mean, it's not like you were coming yeah. here just to, to knock on doors and, and yeah. back for money or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. could have done that too, probably. But <laughs> but uh, no, so it was all good. And, and so, yeah, and then, and that's right when then all of the countries in Europe started to realize that spectrum had value. Like these radio frequencies, you could sell it to a mobile operator like Vodafone, Orange, T-Mobile, and they'll pay billions of dollars for those frequencies so they can operate their phone networks. And those networks, you know, it was expensive and they were pretty much a license to print money as far as a business goes. So they'd pay and they'd pay, but they needed, they knew how to operate a network, how to build people, how to collect money, how to do the promotion, how to do the sales and marketing. But very few, as this rapid deployment started, sometimes two or three new operators in each country, mm. how do we deploy these networks? How do we do the RF planning to, to design the radio frequencies? Yeah, and actually to build the infrastructure and physically. Build, yeah, mm. you have to go out and do all the planning. Mm. Then you have to find the rooftops, build the towers, but get you have to licenses. get those all permitted. Yeah. You have to get those all permitted mm. and they take, you know, here in the Czech Republic, sub permits and then the, the proper, you know, building permits. 
And then you have to install all the equipment. We have to build it with steel. Then you got to install the equipment. Then you have to connect it to the network. Then you have to optimize it, debug it. And then, you know, and there's not just the sites, but then there's the BTSs. And then for the BTSs goes the switch. So it's, it's a proper network, a phone mm-hmm. network, but it's mm-hmm. all wireless. Mm-hmm. And so you had to build in the, the network that your people talk on. Then you also had to build the, the, the microwave links and the, the fiber links to transfer all the data back. You know, in between the cell sites. So it's pretty intense. And there weren't a lot of people that knew how to do all that. But I'd been doing that in the U.S. for quite a few years. I was, you know, running there. I was the national acquisition manager working with all the construction guys and permitting guys and all that. Uh And so it made it, I was like, well, I know how to do this. You were like the one-eyed guy in the kingdom of the blind. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You were the one with the knowledge. (laughs) And so... um, I formed a company with a friend of mine named Phil Carroll, who had been here even before me, and he had so much drive. Still today, the, the company that we formed is still alive, It's in, but it's mainly focused on the U.S. now. Mm. And um, and we just marched, I think we did 27 networks in 14 countries over six years. Out of here? Yeah, out uh-huh. of But Switzerland, Hungary, Germany, Ukraine, Switzerland, I mean, yeah, yeah. And, and, and sometimes multiple, and, and sometimes uh-huh. multiple. Like we built... Half of what was the Oscar network here, working with Ericsson years ago, which became Vodafone. We built half the T-Mobile network, which is still T-Mobile, mm-hmm. right? It was it was Radio Radio Mobile at the time. Mm-hmm. So just lots of countries. Just we built twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and, so, and yeah, and and this. So so you were more on let's say the infrastructure side. Yeah, on on the business there, mm-hmm. and. Uh, that's far away from gastro <laughs> yeah. and hospitality, right? Way, way, yeah, exactly. I think so. You kind of learned on the go. I mean, yep. you never went back to school. No, no. Uh-huh. Yeah, you learn more just applying yourself and doing it. I thought, but you know, th- those same skills, right? That we talked about. Mm. You're smart. You work hard. You just get the job done, mm. and you don't have a bunch of excuses. Why not? Mm. And when it's your own company and you're starting, to, so I was bringing people in, you know, for this for to deploy networks. You know, I think we had 160 people. Mm. You know, just in various projects around Europe in different countries, mm. and that that's even tougher because you've got to get them residence permits, building, yeah, you know, right. work permits. Half the time we just didn't, yeah. you know, because they needed the network deployed. And so the, the, the uh, government would kind of turn a blind eye for six or eight months while we did our deal, mm-hmm. you know. That's the beauty about the Czech Republic is that sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you can get away with, you know, mm-hmm. they, they see the greater good of what you're doing and they don't, you know, okay, let's not yeah. mess with this, you know. But, but then, so you're in this business here for what you say, six, seven, six, seven years, right? Yep, yep. And then you get, go into AVG. Uh, after that, I went in. I, I launched a, an MVNO, a mobile, net, a virtual mobile network operator, in the UK. Yeah, that was in the UK. Piggybacked. Right? So basically, we bought airtime from Vodafone. Yeah. And we created our own tariffs, our own promotions. We did our own customer service. So basically. that's basically like a brand that runs on another people's infrastructure. Yep, exactly. But, but you handle all the customer interaction. Everything. And all that. Everything. We created our own tariffs. We did mm. everything. It's like what Virgin. In the UK, yeah. they run off of, I believe, or Tesco Mobile network. or something. Yeah. You know, some of yeah. those guys do. Yeah, those yeah. are all MVNOs. Yeah. So we did that in, in the UK, focused on students, mm. um, because everyone thought students were cheap and they wanted prepaid cards. And we did some research and said, no, they really rely on their, their mobile devices. They spend an average of 26 pounds a month 
and they're all on contract because they want the latest, greatest phones. And with the contract comes the latest, greatest phone. And so we blew that market right out. We had the highest average revenue per customer in the country. Because mm-hmm. if you take all your blended, you know, ARPU, the average revenue per month, right? It was 19 pounds. Our was 26. Mm-hmm. And so that quickly got sucked up by Vodafone. Yeah, but, but which is what actually happens quite often when yeah. somebody opens up these so-called virtual mobile network operators yeah. that, that is basically just a brand on top of somebody it else's is. infrastructure. Yep. So we have many infrastructure they, costs. Yeah, they, they, they actually get bought by the big ones in the end. You, you acquire customers, you build a customer base, and then you sell it off to a big one, and then you wait your two years on a gardening leave, <laughs> and then <laughs> do you do it again. it again. Yeah, and in some countries you can pull that off for yeah. sure. I've seen you know, it in Denmark when I lived in Denmark. I saw the yes. same guy do it like t- t- two or three circles yeah. on this market. Because as long as, as, so Vodafone was a business brand. Mm. They really couldn't have cared less about students, less about consumers, the average consumer. And so when we came in and said, we'll attack the student market, because they couldn't. Mm. They're like, they were just happy probably. We dilute our did, brand. Yeah. We, we, we don't even know how to do it. So yeah, you come in, we'll, we'll just keep, we'll send you all the call records from the switch and you have to, on your users and you've got to do everything else. Mm. And so they made money and we made money, wow. you know, and it was really fun. We, I don't know if you remember, uh, and maybe they saw T-Mobile, they used to have the flexi tariff, mm. where it's based on kind of units and different things. We created that tariff. We were the first ones on the planet to create this tariff called, we didn't call it flexi. We just said, look, we give you a thousand credits. You can use them however you want. Voice is one, one credit a minute. Texts are, no, voice is two credits a minute. Texts are one credit a minute. And picture messages back then, you know, mm. were three, three credits a minute. We don't care how you use them. You just have a thousand credits. Use them however you want. And that killed the average mobile operator because they were, they made their money when they had, okay, you have this many voice minutes, this many yeah. SMS, this, and, and, you'd always, yeah. and, they count, and then you'd always break out of your bundle. Yeah, yeah. And instead of having a $19 tariff, you would end up paying 25. Yeah, yeah. But we eliminated that and they yeah. loved it. Well, some of them must have hated the kids, it. The customers loved it, but the customers loved it. operators hated it. But they you. spent, yeah, but T-Mobile emulated it mm. completely in the UK with the Flexi tariff. They lost $1.6 billion in revenue that year they emulated it. Uh-huh. Because it, you can't do it in a massive to everyone. Mm. Students, yes, because they were spending 26 pounds, yeah, yeah. even with those tariffs, yeah. but not the average punter on the street. No yeah. way. Mm. And then and then you get to AVG, right? Yeah. And then from there, uh, yeah. Then, yeah, then came AVG. I was trying to remember the exact year. It might have been 2004 or something. And AVG is, uh, for those <clears throat> who don't know, I mean, that's uh, one of the world's biggest antivirus companies. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean it's one of I mean if you have what Norton, um, Samat- Mac- yeah Norton Mac- McAfee, McAfee, there's AV AVG. and AVG. There's and there's quite Ava, a few Ava, Avast, yep and Avast, and uh, Node32 or Eset, Eset. Yeah, Eset. Yeah. Yeah. So Eset, Avast, and AVG are all Czech based or mm-hmm. Slovak based. At the time, they were the same country because Eset is from Slovakia, mm-hmm. and they're all three in their own right. Uh, AVG was the first. AVG, um, but that that's when the Microsoft you know platform was born, the operating system. And as soon as they start to see there were, there were vulnerabilities, people start to exploit those vulnerabilities with, and you know with viruses and mm. things. Then there needed to be a layer of protection, and um, a lot of people from the Czech Republic, smart scientists and engineers, started making those products. I think uh, McAfee and, and Norton from Symantec started first, mm. uh, but then you know quickly. Fast mm. followers. Mm. I, I, um, 
so so you you come into AVG as a CEO, um, and how big was the company back then? I mean, it was probably I'm trying to remember now. It was doing about twelve million dollars in revenue per year. Per year, um, I think it had a hundred and twenty people, mm -hmm. mainly engineers. Probably a hundred of those were engineers mm -hmm. in Bruno. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and then you you stay there for how long? Just under eight years. And what was the what what did you do? I mean, what was it? Because I think yeah. you told me we were talking about this once. You said that they were struggling selling their products. Yeah, and and you know you went into this freemium. What, what yeah. was the kind of the? So as much as I'd like to take a lot of credit for yeah, the, just for, for AVG, just do that. <laughs> just do that. Yeah. I can't. Um, and this is one Carl Obluk, who was their CTO, their founding CTO, and also was the CEO before I came in, um, who's still a good friend of mine. In fact, I talked to him today. He um, he told me the story that they were they made the product, great product, mm. very competitive, maybe better than most of the other products, but they just small company, Czech Republic. They didn't know how to market it. They didn't know how to sell it. They didn't know how to build a brand, and they were going by the name Grisoft. So the company was called Grisoft, but the brand was called AVG. And so one day they just said, well, fuck it. Let's just give it away for free. Mm. If, we can't, if we're not making any money, let's just give it away. Let's mm. just disrupt the market. And what they didn't realize was that that was the beginning of freemium in the technology space. You know, if you go back, Gillette Razors did freemium mm. to the military. You, I mean, there, there was freemium models that had been created long before that, but in technology... It was probably the first, and it was by accident, which most of these things are. Mm. A lot of these big business innovations are someone just trying it on or an experiment or even just a bloody accident, right? Mm. Mm. And so that's when they started, the brand started to grow because all the technologists on the planet were going, well, there's this AVG product out of the Czech Republic that's better than Norton, better than, than Symantec, mm. and it's free. So they would install it on everyone's computers, you know, their aunts, their uncles, their moms, everybody. I, I rarely run into someone who had, didn't have AVG on their computer mm. at one time or another. Mm. So I was really fortunate in that I got to walk into a company and it's been around for, you know, five or six years, limited traction, but still $12 million is nothing to sneeze at, mm. right? Um, and a global customer base, um, mostly in English speaking countries. Um, and they had it translated into every language under the sun, mm. like 67 different languages, but only about nine of those mattered. And it was every, it was English speaking countries or countries where English was the strong second language. Mm. Just, that's just how it was. And so um, we proceeded to, over that eight years, I proceeded to build a, a proper management team, which was more outward facing sales and marketing. Uh, the engineers were world-class, always were and continue to this day to be. Um, we put lots of challenges in front of them. They hit every single one of them. I can give you examples, but I won't bore you. But um, we grew it from, you know, this small company to a global company mm. uh, doing just under 300 million in revenue, growing rapidly, like 35% free cash flow. So just growing the first four years I was there, it was 100% a year. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, and we had the opportunity then to take it public on the New York Stock Exchange, um, which we were successful at. Thank God, that's pretty, that's a hectic 
roadshow and you know what if you fail what you know mm. again a different story for a different time but but, but, um, but, but we got but, to but, do that yeah but with that let, let's let me go back a little bit because it's such an interesting thing because you say 12 million dollars when you walk in mm-hmm. um is it is this the DJ from Seattle walks in through the door <laughs> yeah. that has been, been doing been, a little uh, bit of infrastructure stuff in mobile? <laughs> yeah, and launching NVNO. What got me the job was because I had done the MVNO in the UK, mm. so I had consumer product experience, and that's what helped because this was a consumer antivirus yeah, company. Uh, yeah, but and so they're like, okay, you get the consumer, and they couldn't find anyone. I mean, they they looked and they looked and they looked, but they couldn't find a good fit. Someone who could who would be willing to live in Bruno, mm-hmm. someone who understood the Czech culture because I'd been deploying networks all over Europe, but lived here, uh-huh. understood the Czech culture, the challenges because they didn't want someone to some big blowhard to walk in the door and say, yep. "Oh, you guys are a bunch of idiots," yeah, yeah, yeah. and destroy what they had built. Yep. And that happens a lot, especially American CEOs coming into foreign countries. It's a very different culture. Yeah, and you mm. so you have to be cognizant of that. Mm. And so that's probably what got me the job was mm. the fact that I'd been in the UK for three years mm. and. There were, and I had the, the the original investors in AVG. I had known as well, and they had they had helped me sell um, a company in the past, part of this, part of this infrastructure company. Yeah. And so we knew them, and they knew me, and they knew what I could do. So they were big fans. Mm. Uh, Pierre Kake was one of the guys. If anybody out there knows, remembers Pierre when he lived here. Um, and so that was that that helped. That was a stepping mm. stone. Fix the mic a little bit, like like this, and uh, yeah, turn yeah. Cool. And, um, uh, JR speaks a lot with his hands, so so <laughs> we keep moving the mic a little bit around. Um, uh, but yeah, but so you walk through the door on a twelve million dollar a year company that that has an antivirus product that it has drug, struggle selling, and one of the things that happens is that the product is actually given away for free. Yep. But the revenue grow hundred percent per year. So how does that work? So after, after I got here, they were growing. 20, 30% a year. Yeah, but but how does that work? How do you grow revenue when you're giving so, away your product for free? Yeah, that's a, that's a great story. So with the freemium product, and this is what I loved about the company, even though I'd done nothing about in antivirus, I knew nothing about cybersecurity at the time. I just had the consumer experience, online experience, et cetera. And so I thought, okay, these guys have a pretty well-known brand, mm. right? They're on millions of computers already as a free product and they they had a free and a paid product right but they weren't they were um super smart but it was an engineering culture right so the go to market was fairly non-existent it was hard to buy the product on the website and as far as renewing the product when the first year was up forget it it was like pulling teeth right and so if you just make it easy for people to buy and easy for people to renew, and then you also start doing some advertising, you start doing some PR, you start leveraging, you bring in people who have done it before. Um, we went from two people on our web team, just doing consumer web to like 37 and seven mm-hmm. different languages sitting mm-hmm. in Prague. Mm-hmm. Right. So you just got the best of the best, no matter where they were. And <clears throat> so that diversity helped, but then you became an engine. And the, so basically the more free, people you have, they love you because, and they trust you because you just gave them a great free product. Again, mm. one of the best products in the market, but costs you nothing. Mm. And so that builds trust. And then pretty soon we're at hundred million customers free. Then we're at 150, then we're at 200, then we're at 250, then we're at 300. So one of the first companies they hit like 300 million active customers. And that's like, they've been, they've, they've done something, you know, with the software in the last 30 days. 
So that was our cutoff. And so 300 million of those. And so only 14 of those million ever moved to the paid product. Because once you've got somebody for free on a product that works really, really well, it's hard to get them to pay. To pay yeah. But what they paid for was different features. The antivirus engine, the core protection engine, was the same in both. But if you wanted anti-spam, if you wanted email filtering, whatever, then you moved to the internet security, the paid version. Mm. Right? And so, like I said, So you're basically selling, let's say, a product in a category above with a broader spectrum of, yeah. of protection, right? Yeah, just broader spectrum. A bigger quantum. Yeah, maybe like three. Yeah. <laughs> We're all and directions. That, and some, you know, that, that did work. Um, but the, the trust and the brand awareness is what drove, like there were months where we had like 12 million people come to our website to check it out, to check out free. And what, what we found was when they come to check out free, sell them hard there. If they don't want to go, if they don't want the paid, they just want the free, make it easy for them to get the free. But you would get a large percentage to either buy it or take a trial and then buy it. But we didn't care as long as we had them because once they use the free product, you, like know, you have them, not even 3% will mm. then convert to the paid product. Mm. So when you get them during the buying decision on the website, the first time they come, that's when you win. Uh -huh. And we would get 35% or so to, to convert mm -hmm. to a paid product right then. And so that's what drove a lot of revenue. But when you have that many customers, you, we also had a platform that helped them protect them in their browser when they were doing search. We would scan the links. Now it's common, but we were yeah. the first to have this. Yeah. And so we struck deals with Google, Yahoo, et cetera, all the search engines and said, we want a large percentage of your search revenue because you're being protected by our service. Service. Yeah. They're, they're entering your browser through our link scanner technology. And so we got a massive percentage of the search revenue. That was some of the times that was worth over $100 million a year. Mm. So that's how you... Um, earn money from your customer base and you can charge them nothing, mm. right? It isn't selling their data, which is common today. We protected their data. We kept them private. We just got paid by those, by those companies. So there were lots of little deals like that because you mm. had such a massive base mm. um, that we could do to leverage the revenue. Yeah, I used I, I, I used AVG I mean, back in Iceland and, and also I think when I lived in Denmark. And I, what, I, what I really liked about it, at that time was that I was never being hassled to give my credit card number or anything like this. It yeah. was super, super easy to adopt yep. to the product. Yep. And it actually worked. It was you know, when I when I went ratings. to some of the darker corners of the internet, <laughs> AVG made sure that I didn't make any mess. <laughs> you know? trouble. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't have any spyware or malware attached to your yeah. hard drive. Um but um and the company grew. I mean you 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 went from what you say, like hundreds, hundred and twenty people when you when you when you join, and then by the by, by when you listed on the stock exchange, it was by like a thousand people, right? Um, I think it was like eight hundred and something, but uh -huh. yeah, yeah, with contractors and everybody else, probably. So this is in eight years. You go from yeah. a, let's say a hundred to eight hundred. That's that's a lot yeah. of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It wasn't easy. But how did you? <laughs> what what did you do right? There was two things that probably equated. Number one, you, you know, you got your engineering group, you got your finance group, and they, they grew in, grew independently. But we also acquired, I acquired 19 different technology companies during that period, mm -hmm. none of which, except for one, a, a tune-up company out of Germany, contributed to our revenue. It was all great engineering teams, small, with great technology that I wanted to integrate into my, into my um, stack, right? So 
when I started, we were an antivirus company. When I left, we had 19 different products. We could cross-sell and upsell to that mm -hmm. 300 million people, right? That was a huge growth engine. Um, but I did a lot of that through, um, you know, acquiring small technology companies from all over the world. Israel, Germany, um, the United States, and probably a few more, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we had, so we had offices in California. We had offices in, in Israel. We had offices in Germany. We had offices, in, obviously, in the Czech Republic, our hub, mm -hmm. and in the UK. So it's, when, you, when you talk about it, it's a lot of different business units in a lot of different locations, mm -hmm. so it's not quite as big as you think. If you take it It matters But um, but it's still I mean to 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 manage I mean I I've done two mergers for example in my life where I where I had to merge two ongoing businesses into one and it's not easy you know it's it's not mm. easy to integrate yeah an acquired company into what you're doing uh, it's not easy to I don't know just go from 20 salespeople to 50 I mean you mm -hmm. like you know to to scale up is is actually it's often even more easy to scale down, you know, because you kind of know, okay, I just have to let this stuff go. Um, and to manage growth, mm -hmm. and this is just an exponential growth. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's an online product. The, the cost of making the product is the same, whether you have 100 million customers or 300 million customers. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, there's yeah. the scaling in, in terms of product production is super easy. Yeah. But all the other stuff, why... Why? Because it's a success case. I mean, you come in there, you you list it on the stock exchange. A lot of people get a lot of money, and the yeah, we made. Yeah, we were in the top ten return to investors the year we went public. Yeah, and that's unheard of. And it, and and the exit was what three hundred million dollars or something like that. It was some crazy. What was the, the IPO? Or the the IPO. We were. I think we're just out, just over a billion dollar valuation. Billion dollar valuation. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy money. Back then, it, yeah. Back then, today it's nothing, but back then it was. Yeah, yeah it was substantial. And this is in two thousand and thirteen. Twelve, thirteen. Twelve, yeah. twelve, twelve. I left in thirteen. So it was, um, yeah. But it was also we had been always we've been pushing off so much cash for mm. so long as dividends as dividends to shareholders, and which I was one as well, right? Yeah. But for years so that's why when you look at it was like a 800x return on investment wow it was ridiculous yeah insane uh, it's like that's like uh, Pablo I, Escobar makes or something you know yeah it made a lot of people a lot of money yeah. which is good investors deserve to make a lot of money yeah. you know if they believe in you early and they give you money mm. but I mean it must have been uh, because you mentioned earlier that you know like the, the there is a I mean, this is a technology company. I know. I know we're now turning this into some high-tech business podcast, but <laughs> fuck that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so you have, a, a, and this is very often the case in, in in technology. You have a lot of very clever IT or engineering people that have an idea, but they are not really great at presenting it, selling it, or or packing it in. So, so that's that's one challenge, um, which of course just often is a, about fight, finding then the right people to actually do what the other guys are lacking but but what my experience of coming in here uh, and and managing and because yeah i went into uh, an it company as well but on a much much smaller scale than than yours we were just 100 yeah, 100 people when i came and we were 100 people big. when i left 
were any of them the same. But we grew, yeah. <laughs> but we grew, and 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 uh, you know, we yeah, we had a lot yeah. of d- d- changes through years, but um, zero growth. <laughs> but uh, you know, like I exactly sensed it in the same way as as you were saying. It didn't here. It didn't make any sense to come in and and uh, you're an asshole, or you know, I'm gonna fire the the twenty least performing people, or it just. People here need to be rubbed differently than than maybe in in some other markets. Was that never a challenge for you to just to kind of I don't know to to manage in in a different culture? Yeah, yeah. But by then I'd done I'd worked in seven different countries, and I can talk about the differences in each country. But my my underlying theme was, <clears throat> excuse me, that they're every kind in every country, and so you could find the right people. Mm. Right. So forget the stereotype and there are stereotypes and they're often correct you know you've heard the italian ones you've heard the polish ones the british ones the czech ones whatever who cares there's every kind there's the go-getters that are super motivated they can get shit done in every country you just have to find them Mm. and just like in every country it's never it's not always that easy um but i guess for me like i I came into avg and i said okay i'm gonna give it six months i'm not gonna remove anyone i'm just gonna learn the lay of the land and there's gonna be people that are rock stars and i'm gonna promote there's going to be people that are just blockers and I'm going to fire their ass at the right time. Mm. And there's going to be people that just do their job. And my job is to like try to get the best out of them. Mm. Right. And to, to make sure that I'm not seen as the corporate schmuck from America who just came in to run this check company and thinks he knows everything. Mm. So I listened more than I did anything else. And that at some point, um, I, within six months, I was very lucky The some of the top original check management team decided to have a, mutiny and call the shareholders and they failed. And the next day I fired the top three Uh in one day. Yeah. They still call that bloody Tuesday, Uh (laughs) but that was because they decided to go behind my back and try to get me fired. And the shareholders went, we brought Jaron here to do a job. He's doing the job. You guys are growing a hundred percent a year up from 25% last year. Fuck you. Mm. Jaron decide your fate. And the next day I fired him Mm. and that, and then I promoted people at the same time. And that got me a lot of obedience and a lot of respect, which it would, that's not a country thing. That's just what happened. Mm. Right. And so that was super helpful. I noticed there was a change. The conversations in the hallway were more online with what we talked about in the business meeting. It wasn't, we make decisions together as a management team. And then the minute they leave the room, everyone decides to do something completely different. So Mm. no one's listening. Mm. That stopped when I fired three people. Mm. Right. So that was just kind of the beginning of that really strong team. And uh, we really worked hard at finding the gems in the business, and there were a ton of them. Mm. So we brought in additional people from outside that had done it before, but we also really focused on just taking those you know, men and women and, yeah. who were driven and were frustrated with the way mm. things were done before. And I, I, the list is huge of mm. people that I'm still friends with today that got promoted to, you know, lead accountant or head of project or my own chief of staff, mm. you know, just, just Yeah. Those, those rock star stories are everywhere in, in businesses if you find them. Mm-hmm. But uh, why do you think that, why are the three antivirus companies in the Czech Republic? What, 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 do, do you have any, I mean, they're actually super good with IT and startups and, and technology. It's, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, I think there's um, a brain trust, um, number one. You know, mathematicians, engineers, world-class, absolute world-class. When you look at AI and you look at computers and 
coding and and stuff there it's always been world class and so that's why like even in bruno you've got red hat nokia seems everybody's got a development hubs because there's three technical universities and a lot of smart people coming out of them mm-hmm. right and so that's part of it and i think at the time right with the windows operating system the vulnerabilities there was an opportunity and so just you know three different groups of people usually a couple guys together you know decided well hey let's let's build this antivirus product and you know they're all today huge he said they're probably again this is guesstimate because they're private but they're probably approaching a billion dollars or more a year in revenue a vast which at some point a vast took avg private and merged the two companies they were approaching that billion dollar mark a vast just you know, a month ago, got purchased by Symantec LifeLock. Mm. So now all the free players are becoming locked into the mm. paid players mm. in the U.S. So it's kind of the end of an era, I mm. think. But mm. it seems like, especially consumer antivirus and security, it's just a business that's just kept growing, kept giving. It's mm. always good to shareholders mm. and will continue to be. Sometimes it just defies gravity. I don't yeah. know how, but it does. Um. Yeah, you mentioned this about that, you know, this bloody Tuesday when you fired those three people. Did it ever feel bad for you to let someone go? I mean, did it ever? I mean, I think sure, th- this sure. is what most managers fear. That's to have yeah. to fire someone. Um, yeah, you know, initially, like in your career, it is a little bit hard. But I always looked at it like, well, if I let you sit, if I let someone who's substandard You've, you've warned them, you've, you've tried maybe to move them into different slots, um, but if they don't fit, they don't fit. And when it's time to get rid of them, you need to do it. You need to identify it quickly, mm. do what you need to do, and then if it doesn't work, you need to get rid of them fast. Mm. So hiring someone who isn't a good fit or someone who just turns into a not a good fit because they get a bad attitude, that's fine. There's no harm there. But if you don't identify it and fix it fast, that's on you. Mm. And so... I got to the point where I would blame myself because I didn't react fast enough. I knew that person wasn't really right yeah. there. And I just, you know. And you went against your gut instinct. Yeah, went against your gut instinct and you let it drag for an extra yeah. month or two and then you regret it. So my whole conversation when I had to get rid of someone is like, look, I think you know and I know it's not a good fit. If I don't do something about it now, I'm going to blame myself. I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be frustrated. And I might just take it out on you and make your life miserable. Mm. I don't want to be mad at myself. I don't want you to be mad at me. It's over. Today's mm. your last day. This is our general counsel. It's taking you to your desk. Clean out your desk. Today's your last day. Mm. Right? And then it's just clean. It's done. Um, and I, it doesn't happen that often. So it isn't like you do it every day. With those three in particular, and if they ever listen to this, they know who they are. They know that what that day was. But I tried. And I tried and I brought them into the inner circle. I took their advice. I asked them, what do you want to do as mm. things progress? Mm. I gave them a clean roadmap and they were still stabbing me in the back, talking shit every day, just undermining everything I did. And then they, they uh, orchestrated a, a coup against me, got the shareholders, mm. the board members to meet with them without me knowing it. But I found out about it ahead of time. So I said, Hey guys, after the meeting, let's go out and have beers. Let's have dinner. Oh no, I have to go home. Oh no, I have to do this. So I made them lie to me. Mm. And then they had it. They got whacked. Mm. Uh, the board called and said, look, it's up to you what you do, do with them in the next day. So that zero pity zero. I was, no, happy. And I, 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 I was happy to get them out of the corral. Yeah. And I think actually, I think that, uh, you know, I think that this, uh, replacing, 
staff or, or management or, or, or letting someone who is not fitting in or not, not performing is uh, the fear of it is overrated because, you know, like in, in my, my experience, you can actually, as long as you're just honest with the person, you say why. Um, and I, I totally agree with you. Like the, the longer it goes that you don't deal with it, the more silly you actually look in your own eyes and also towards the other people. Because usually when someone is underperforming or, or, or working against the interest of the business, everybody knows it. Other people yeah. see it. And if you don't, as the, as the big boss, if you don't wield the sword and get rid of the problem, you're actually looking weak. Yeah, yeah, and you're creating a culture yeah. where, oh, it's okay, I can come into work late or maybe not show up, or I can do a half-assed job, and yeah. that's a culture that's on you. You built it because yeah. you let it happen. Yeah, I think it's it's um, I, I I don't know my in my my yeah in my previous life when I was something then um, I I like to manage with people and I like to be with them, but I also always wanted them to know where the the authority rested. You know, like mm -hmm. it, ultimately, it's my. It's yeah. me who says who is on the team and who's not. Yeah, yeah. Um, but are you a good manager? I mean, like, uh, are you a successful businessman if you look in the mirror and, and... Well, I haven't. Not everything I've built has been a success, you know. Uh -huh. Out of the eight companies probably that, I, that I've started and built, two of them went up in flames. Mm. Right? So the average is good. Mm. Um, but that's usually due to concept or maybe I just wrong market fit, you know. I was drinking the Kool-Aid and it just wasn't really there, you mm. know, but the others were fine. Um, but I, this is something I learned at, 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 when I was working for VoiceStream, which again, T-Mobile, because this is how I was managed. And that mm. was, it's, it's really simple. Be super clear on the vision. Mm. Be super clear on the strategy. Mm. I'm trying to get there too. <laughs> yeah, this is good. There we go, yeah. So be super clear. Your job as the CEO, the founder, is to mm. define the long-term vision, mm. the market fit, the strategy. And strategy is what you do every day, like how you do it. Mm. And then is to find the right and right people. So kind of and create the skeleton for how you're going to do it. But then, and do that with your team and build a strong team that can do it better than you can. So someone who can sell better than you, someone who can do PR and marketing better than you, someone who can do engineering better than you. I know enough to be dangerous in all those. You know, I can turn on some heat, ask some right questions, but you go two layers down, I'm clueless. Mm. And so you find the people that are better and then you let them run. Mm. And it goes back to what I said earlier. They know what's expected. And so you let them do it. And if they have a problem, they'll come back to you and say, I need your help. Mm. Right? And you, you check in on a regular basis, you know, but as long as you know they're getting the job done and they're going to come to you if they have a problem, that's, that's how you build a strong organization. Because mm -hmm. if you're micromanaging, you're checking every numbers, checking everything and making sure everything's working right, no one has any joy. No, no one owns it except for you. And then you're just a, you're a CEO slash project manager, mm -hmm. right? So set a clear path and let them run, help them when they need it and make decisions. Right. Your job is to keep the ball moving forward all the time. It's going to zigzag, but it's forward motion and momentum. So make the tough decisions so that the team doesn't get stuck. Mm. That's that's it's kind of that simple, really. Yeah, but it, <laughs> but I but I think I think um, I think a lot of I think a lot of people make it complicated because they they are afraid to be exposed that they don't know everything mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is actually the best thing to know 
is to know that you don't know everything. Yeah, yeah. Because that's the only way you can learn something new and that's the only way you can actually admit that you need people like you're saying, you know, the people that are better than you at oh, something, yeah. you know. Um, and But yeah. I, I, and I think, I think it's, um, I think we still do have this kind of a myth around that the manager is some sort of a god or should know everything, you know, or the CEO should know. Yeah. We're actually, the CEO is just uh, another human, you know. <laughs> it's it's yeah. not like, uh, but it's just unlucky enough to be in that seat, you know. I know. Or 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 not clever enough <laughs> to do any of the better jobs, you know, <laughs> that where, where real expertise yeah. is needed, you know. Exactly. But yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, but so you leave, yeah, but maybe, yeah, this is what you're saying, like, you know, how simple it is. Make a plan, make the strategy, set the team, get the structure in and let them run. Yeah, is this something that you got from your family? Because you definitely didn't get it from school. No, you never get that from school. Um, I got it more so from my that first job that I had working for experienced operators, guys who knew how to build organizations, um, and that's how they treated me. Mm-hmm. And those are the exact words that the CEO told me when he interviewed me. Mm-hmm. This is how we work here. If you can't operate in, in that environment, don't take this job. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm going to give you so much freedom, but I need to trust that you're going to tell me if something's going wrong. Because if I find out from somebody else, I'm going to fire you on the spot. So run it, run it fast, run it hard, hit the targets. But when you're in trouble, tell me so I can help you. Because some people feel like that's, oh, well, I'm weak. Like you said, I'm yeah. weak. I don't know everything. And I was the first one to go, hey, you know me, right? I've never done this before. Can you help me? Mm-hmm. And, and as long as you create that kind of a culture, you're fine. But that that's, uh, yeah, maybe just to wrap this up, uh, you know this uh, business podcast um that <laughs> because that that's that that's what I was curious about the cultural thing and the struggles or or the challenge of being here i know and I know that you had been working here, but you had been working on building infrastructure in in mm-hmm. in the mobile operating world and yeah. and and yeah, you lived here, but you were also doing projects in in other countries where there's different culture when I came here into management, I felt like i i the, people looked at me like some sort of a god. I should have all the answers. I should make all the decisions. And I didn't want to. And I was thinking at that time, okay, is this like from communism? Is it like when that the authority is always very centralized? Mm. How was this? Because, I mean, what, what you're saying, and if you grow a company from 100 people to 800 people, you can't run everything through the CEO's desk. Yeah, yeah. So, no, those top executives that I brought in, some promoted, but a lot of them also from the outside, who had previous global experience, that was on them, mm-hmm. how they build their organization. We'd agreed every month. I mean, every year we do the budget. They would pitch how many heads they want. We'd shave it down by 60%, and here you go, and then they'd mm-hmm. go do it. As long as they stayed within their budgets, I don't care what they did, how they did it. Mm-hmm. right? And that's, that's the kind of people you have to have. Now, there was a long period, like a year and a half, where I did have to be involved in a lot of that stuff until those people came in. Uh, and that was hectic. That was hard. And sometimes I had no clue. Mm-hmm you know, what I was doing, but I had to keep the ball moving. And so I'd be like, all right, let's do it this way. If we're wrong, we can double back. I I soon adopted the phrase, what do we have to lose? Mm -hmm. Okay, there's no downside to this, so let's try it. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the the downside's limited, we can identify it quickly, so let's try it. Whether it be a new product or whether it just be hiring this person or whatever it might be, I always look at the downside and what's the risk. Because if it's minimal and you have the bandwidth and you have the people that really believe in it, let them do it. Mm You know, yeah, but this this expectation of you to be the almighty, all-knowing, yeah, I think you that didn't was, feel that that mm, wasn't there. No, no, it really wasn't. There was 
lip service by some mm. was like, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. But they never did it. Mm. I, I very few of them ever did it. And that's why they didn't last. Mm. Um, so no, no, but I, you do see it. You do see it, but to, any top CEO can get that, that complex or people can look at them that way if they're hugely successful. But I was in, you know, an unknown entity coming in mm. and I figured I had to prove myself through some inclusion and, but yeah, it was not easy in the first year. So for six months, especially mm. they didn't want me there, mm. you know, so I just had to do a lot of stuff myself. I'd write the business plan. I had to write the PR strategy. Yeah. I had to fucking write the PR, my own press release yeah. announcing I'd come to the company. I mean, passive aggressive upon yeah, passive aggressive uh, I, that, that's, that I, I've had the same. I had the same. I loved it because I knew I, 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 I told them I will be here longer than you. You can do this all as long as you want. I will outlast all of you. And I did, you know, because I, I was the one with the sword, you know. I could, yeah. I could. yeah. But luckily, that's three out of, you know, 150. Mm. You know, so I, was, I felt pretty good. And it gave us the opportunity to promote some really smart guys. And if anyone hears this, you know who you are, mm. right? To take these positions well, you who are unhappy. Say, if anyone hears this, I mean, this is a podcast with a million listeners. Yeah, you know? No, I mean, but it's the guy from Bruno, yeah, well, you know, named Olda, who's still one of my best friends. Probably still, he's probably still listening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he will be listening. I saw him on the list. Okay, cool, cool. I'll send it to him. Yeah. Um, anyway, you make money because you're a shareholder, the, the IPO, yeah. you make money and you, you, you take some time off, but then you kind of go back to an old passion. That's the music, right? Yeah. I mean, the music was always there, but... I yes. guess when you're running a, a big multinational business, you, you don't have a lot of time to be playing. and Not so much, not so much. Luckily, my CFO, John Little, was also a musician and still and had a band and has a band now. So we played together a little bit. Towards the end mm. of the AVG years, we started playing together and doing stuff. Um, but then after, when we'd left, then is when it really, yeah, then it kicked in. Then proper proper musicians. And proper. Then, but then you, you ditched the trumpet and you have only guitar. Yeah, only guitar. Trumpet hasn't touched your lips since. I got a friend named Ali Torvenen who's a trumpet and trumpet player, and he lives here in Prague. And so occasionally he might throw it in his bag. If you see a crazy guy at a festival or something playing the flugelhorn or the trumpet, that's him. Okay. So yeah, occasionally, but no, I can't play anything anymore. No. On that, no. So it's all guitar. I'm I'm actually a singer and a songwriter, and I and I play guitar. So mm. I'm not a tremendous guitar player, but I write and I sing. And that and the, and this, let's say the the outlet that you. That is your primary musical outlet is Adam Structor, the band yeah. that we yeah. mentioned in the beginning. Um, and what's the you know what's the purpose of Adam Structor? Is it just you having fun? What's what's the what's the goal here? Yeah, so I think <clears throat> when I left AVG. You know, you're just looking for what's the next thing. And so there was, I became a, a, a venture partner at a venture capital fund, mm. which I still am. And that's where I dedicate most of my time now. Um, you could call it full time, actually, if you look at the number of hours a week I put in. But there's a lot of hours in a week, right, between things. So, um, but this was before that, before I became a full time partner is when Adam's Tractor started. And that was to um, just conquer a different mountain. You know, so I had the basic skills. I, I'm musically inclined um, and I always wanted to do it. And so I thought, well, this is going to take a long time, right? To play guitar better, to write songs. I'd never written songs before and to learn how to sing properly so I could sing a little bit. Mm. 
But I was very lucky and found a woman here in the Czech Republic who was, is a professional voice coach. She's a great singer. She's been a performer. So, you know, she takes it from experience. So three years of twice a week and then practicing almost every day. Um, I could, you know, let, let other people decide if I can sing or not. I, I'm not going to say I can sing. I still hate to listen to my own music. Um, <clears throat> but, I hate listening but, but, to my own podcasts. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So some people like it. Mm. Um, I met a guy here through Johanna, the, the voice instructor, um, who named Gregory Darling, and he's a saint of a guy. He's been a musician all of his life, quite famous. He's Billboard Top 20 artist. He lives here in Prague, uh, originally from L.A., And so he came to to a concert I did with threw together a few guys, and we sucked completely sucked. It played at Slamnik. Uh, my drummer didn't practice. My bass player didn't practice. Nobody gave a shit. So I basically just said, "Okay, guys." I just cranked up the electric guitar and screamed my lungs out for you know half an hour. He was like, "There's some pretty cool stuff there. I can work with this." And these <laughs> so, were your original songs that you were yeah. playing there. Okay. Yeah. And so Gregory said, yeah, I can work with these. Some are good, some aren't so good, but I can work with this. We Let's let's do the album. Mm. And so then it was, you know, a year of studio time on and off in his studio. Um, pretty pretty condensed, but it's one thing to lay down the tracks, and then it's another thing to mix them. You know, it's it's a long process. And so he uh, he pulled together a good team of guys that that like the music. Mm. And because we, we, we do the basic recordings and we'd send it out see who might bite in his network. And in his network, it was Fernando Sanders, who is an accomplished uh, musician on his own, on Sunny Records. And um, he was a, he's played with everyone from, you know, Slash, David Bowie, you know, you name it. Mm. He's played. What does he play? What, what bass. Uh -huh. Bass. And he, his most recent gig was he was the, the bass player for Lou Reed before uh -huh. he died, for I think six or seven years. Uh -huh. but, but he lives in Ostrava. Okay, which is of all crazy things. He has a son in in uh, that's Budapest. an a city in the east eastern, eastern part of, of the country. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so he 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 calls that home. Mm. American guy, but just unbelievable bass player. Maybe it's him, Bootsy Collins, and that's it. I mean, there's yeah, there's a shitload, but in my mind, those are the top two bass players on the planet. So he was kind enough to come to Prague and lay down the bass tracks for the songs, and then a gentleman named Manny Elias, who is the original drummer, founding drummer for a band called Tears for Fears. Right, yeah, I know that. Who doesn't know yeah. Tears for Fears? Yeah. Right, think of their first two albums. Mm. That's Manny. He, mm. Those are his grooves, right? So, and he is a saint of a guy, and he just is so talented. He claims he never practices, and I believe he doesn't. But he's so damn good. Like he'd come in, and three takes, he'd have the the whole drum track down. Mm -hmm. One song, he did it in one take. Just, just he, you know, at home he'd prepare, he'd have it in his mind, and he just just so amazing mm. you know and so those are the musicians i'm surrounded by uh and one local guy as well who i don't want to uh discredit Olda, yeah Olda krejcevic who is the guitarist for the band monkey business no, I and actually also had the singer i had the singer from monkey business here tonya graves oh tonya graves yeah she was here super my earlier episode yeah yeah so so Olda and he he is such a talented guitarist like he there's nothing he can't play mm. and his creativity like on some of these songs it goes so just wackadoodle like his solos or his guitar riffs it's just you know you get into the groove of the music and he some of the stuff he creates is like epic i'm still challenging him now to try to play it again <laughs> you yeah. know because if we do a, we'd like to do a concert possibly in the next couple months i'm like but you got to play it like you played it on the record and he's like oh Gotta be kidding me. He needs to learn his own own, <laughs> his riffs. own his own riffs. He's looking at me going, I don't 
really quite remember. But again, insanely talented guitarist. Probably the top guitarist in the country mm-hmm. by far. Um, super talent. So and yeah, when you put a, those guys together. Guitarist and uh, singer in the band. Yeah, as that's well. me. That's yeah. me. Yeah, that's me. But I'm I'm the least talented guy in the group. Mm. But you know, but they, you're they the bring one that better. made it happen. I mean, you brought it all together. You made the songs. I wrote the songs. I sing the songs. Mm. Um, but Gregory Darling, you can't. I got to give him a truckload of credit because mm. he's also the producer. Yeah, yeah. And so if you go, I mean, it's like it's on 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 Instagram or Facebook. It's just Adam's Tractor, but Tractor spelled with a K. Yeah. T-R-A-K-T-O-R. Uh, that's the Icelandic version of the word tractor. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. I knew that. That's what Gunnar told me. Yeah. Um, and also YouTube, all the videos. Uh, initially, when I came out, we uh, we signed with Dark Spark Music, which is a um, is a subsidiary of Sony Music. Um, after the first four singles, we decided to part ways amicably. It was great. Loved working with them. Um, but I don't have the intent to become a rock star. And if I don't, then they're not, they don't want to, they're like, well, why? Then mm-hmm. why am I promoting you? But they put a lot of muscle behind it and they promoted it, especially in the U S so there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of views of the videos and Instagram's doing quite well and all that. But that's because you had a professional label for a while. And then we just kind of said, well, you know, maybe we'll come back around someday, but right now let's, let's put that on hold just because our goals weren't aligned. But uh, just let's now get back a little bit. Um, So, What's what if you were to describe? I mean, I've I've heard some of of your. I actually only heard third three songs. I haven't heard four. There's songs. four. Yeah, a song called "Divided" was uh-huh. released about a month ago. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's twelve tracks that are all done in master. Yeah, and and out. so so if you were to describe this music, I mean, what what would be the? Is it? Uh, yeah. I it's, mean, I know it's a very much of a cliche to to try to categorize music into something, but yeah, I mean, but some you can you can say it's just pure rock or it's pure. Seattle sound slash grunge or, but it's not. The problem is, or the the good thing is, is like, you know, I'm a little bit over 50 years old and the genres that I've lived through are great. Uh, there's so many, oh. so many influences. So you can hear a lot of those in the music. Mm. Some of, you know, I'll have people say, well, you, you sound like Eddie Vedder. I get that a lot. I get, you sound like Eddie Vedder a lot, but not like Eddie Vedder, but just like, if you look at Chris style, Cornell, Lane yeah. Staley, Eddie yeah. Vedder, those were my heroes, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to be influenced by them, but I definitely don't sound like them. But at the end of the day, there's influences, and then there's funk, there's soul, there's that whole new wave movement. You know, you got the Smiths, you got Duran Duran, you got those synths, mm-hmm. and, and I love Nine Inch Nails. I mean, Trent Reznor's a god in my book, right? Mm-hmm. So those dark, so the songs are all over the shop. And sometimes even in one song, it's all over the shop, like three different genres, but not ridiculously like what, what are these guys thinking, but you'll feel. And when, then when you put like Fernando's baseline under some of this, on, under some of it, it takes it to a whole different place. Mm. Right. And same with Manny's drumming. So my job was to lay down tracks with a good groove. I, cause I'd play it on acoustic guitar, do the voice and we do it to a metronome. So it's mm. perfect. Mm. And then they would come in, and we'd chat about it, and then they'd just go to work, right? So I'd be sitting there with Fernando. He'd play, what about this? What about, oh, that's great. Give me something else. Do this, this, this. And then he'd be like, and I'd just keep doing that with them and stuff, and we'd be playing, and we were vibing a lot, mm. and the most magical things came out from him. Mm. And same with Manny. Like, mm. we'd be just talk through it. He'd be like, okay, you know, I can play that a fraction of a second slower, so it just drags a little bit. Let me try that. And we'd be like, try it. And then it's 
I didn't even know that existed. No, no. I didn't no. know a drummer could strike, you know, he can hit right on the beat or slightly ahead, slightly behind by just millimeters of a second and it changes mm. the whole feel of the song. Mm. And so, and he was doing that and stuff. So I'm like, okay, this, these are pros. These are guys who really definitely uh, know a lot more than I do. Mm. Right. But that's where the magic happened. So I, at first I felt like I need to control it. No, this is the way the song was written. No, we got to play it like this. I just gave it up. I was like, mm. no, this is the creation. Mm. I laid down the basics and now it's going to take on a life of its own. You know, so some of them went harder. Some of them went softer. Some of them turned into a pop song, which I still don't like so much, but only one, only one got into the pop category. Mm. Right. But the rest are all influenced by that Seattle sound and even a little bit of eighties, mm. you know, cause and we also are, added the keyboards in some places too. And what are the lyrics about? I mean, what, what are you singing about? Everything. I mean, because you write the songs and the lyrics, right? Yeah. 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 So like, one of the most popular was called a song called Time to Wake Up, and mm. that pretty much says it all. So it was released uh, during the election period. I was hoping Biden would pick it up and make it as, you know, his his theme song. Didn't really happen. Mm. Um, still could. Still could. Next next time around. Um, I, I, I'm yeah. not sure we'll get four more years of Biden. I, I think I he's know. too old. I, that, that could be. Mm. Um, but it just talks about, you know, it's time to wake up. Look, mm. at, look at things. If you see the video on YouTube, you'll see. It's, it's all laid out there because you can see it through the visuals. But, you know, the changes that are going on on the earth, the politics, the, all the upheaval, the climate change, you name it, all these things, racism, blah, 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 right? All the things that we've encountered so heavily over the last five years, it's all there. So it's time to wake up, mm. right? Look mm. differently. It's very simple, acoustic, um, a little bit Mad Season-esque, if you, if you remember Mad Season. Yeah. Um, and uh, the others, one's Nothing is a song that's just written about kind of nothing. Mm. And it starts out really slow, mellow guitar, and then it just goes apeshit Nirvana chorus. Mm. You know, so the ups and downs. I learned that's something I learned from Kurt Cobain, loud and louder, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> so do dynamics. You, wait, does this come easily <clears throat> to you? I mean, like because you, what what you said before. I mean, like you you were not a great guitar player when you were a teenager, and then you have a career in mobile uh, and antivirus and and, and Nasdaq listing, and then yeah. You get out of that machine somehow. Yeah, uh, it spits you out, still alive, and then you go in. Okay, I need to learn the guitar. I need to learn to sing. I have never written yeah. a song. I mean, and here you are. You have twelve tracks recorded with world-known musicians. Yeah, uh, I was it easy. I no, but you. Yeah, it's just like you have to be a little fearless, like. For me, this was a huge mountain to climb. Can I do this? Mm. I don't know. Do I have the inclination to do it? Yes. Do I have the talent? I don't know. I guess I'm going to have to find out. And the, the fear of failure, which is what drives a lot of entrepreneurs, just that pure fear of, of failure is what drives you to be successful. Mm. And so it took me four years before I could sit in a studio. And then sitting in the studio was a complete learning experience. Getting all mic'd up, having to sing in front of the mic, having to, you know, I did, I do some of the guitar parts as well. Well, that means absolute perfection on that song. Like, and Gregor was like, do it again, do it again. Yeah, nice try, do it again. I heard that little, that one string, do it again, do it again. Like 50 takes sometimes to get one, right? Because I'm not a studio guitarist. Mm -hmm. Olda will come in and riff it out in three tries. But so that learning experience, plus the singing and the practicing, because it's there's time in the studio, but then there's practice outside of the studio. Um, so all those things... I just look at it like I needed a really big mountain to climb because my whole life was consumed by AVG, mm. right? I had a family and I still had time for them and everything. And then coming out, I had more time for the family, 
right? But I still had more free time than I knew what to do with, but I'm never bored. So I'm like, well, I always want to do this. I'm taking it on. And that, that turned into a 40 hour a week job mm. doing all those things. Um, maybe not quite that much, but you know what I mean? So I just always figured no matter where you are or what stage you're at in your life, you need to have some big mountain you're climbing and something you're going to conquer, something you know is going to take a long time and you may or may not be successful. Mm. Right. And that keeps it going. And so I'm not going to say I'm a successful singer and songwriter. If people like my songs, great. I, I hope they do. Yeah, I read some review that somebody wrote that uh, music execs in the U.S. should have a big boner in their pants wanting to sign uh, Adam's tractor on their label. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people like this. I, I, uh, uh, there's a, bit of a lot of positive of yeah, Feedback. and and we get a we got a lot of press coverage. We still do get a, whenever we release a single, we get a fair amount of press. Mm. Um, and is that some, is that something that you learned from the the tech industry? Because what you're doing is that you're releasing it song by song by song. You're not yeah, like and doing a lot of promotion, doing the video, yeah, yeah, ton of promotion, uh, connecting with the the first few songs got a lot of coverage uh, in the press. And a lot of interviews with the band and everybody. And so we keep going back to those same, because they like us. So, and then we add a couple every time we release a single. So pretty soon you have, like on average, it was like 25 articles yeah. written. One by Vogue magazine even, here locally. So mm. the, the Czech version of Vogue. Uh, thank you, Michaela, for that. Um, so you just keep grinding. And every song, you hit new audiences. You do it on social. You do it on YouTube. You do it mm. on SoundCloud. You do it three, through PR. Um thinking about collaborating with other musicians also that have a different audience. Um, you know, and then I've got a, a part-time student that works half an hour every day just on Instagram and Facebook, just kind of cruising around looking for cool people that, that can, that I can connect with mm. and have a conversation with. And if we jive, then we, then we follow each other and maybe we'll do something in collaboration in the future, uh, you know, so just kind of broadening the network. The shape of regret. But this is very much, uh, you know, like this is very much a, a business guy, because yeah. you know, like yeah. if I would, if yeah, well, if I, okay, I probably might do the same. But let's say that uh, you, you know, if yeah. you would have done this when you were seventeen, yeah. you just put the fucking album out there, wait, and and then wait. Yes. But now you 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 have a more structured approach, and you know yeah. what you're going for. But what, I mean, and I'm, uh, yeah. By the way, we, we're playing the music on this. You're gonna send cool. me the, the files. Yeah, I'll send you the MP3s. Yeah, and, uh, but um, <clears throat> um, then what? So you said, okay, we're gonna play live, and then are you gonna make another album? Yeah, will it be yeah. With this the will same now be. Crew? Yeah, so, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. This will be lifelong now until they tell me to fo. Right. Okay. So, yeah, we'll continue to do this. Uh, we really like the the first album, the songs. The album's called Quench. By Adam's Tractor Manny is the one who came up with the name at a barbecue. Hey, what are we going to call the album? Manny just goes, Quench. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's it. Okay, I'll give you credit. Awesome. Next subject. <laughs> so no, so almost as easy as the band was named, yeah, right? Yeah. We had the, the name of the album. Um, but it's music is a lifelong endeavor. I can always become a better singer. I can always become a better songwriter. I could learn a new instrument, which I don't. One thing you 
in this industry, it's so specialized. Like for all us, oh, I can do the production. No, you can't. Then when you see professionals, no, I can't. Right? That's a lifelong journey. The sound guys, lifelong journey. Guitar players, lifelong journey. Mm. So if you're going to do one, do pick which one you want to do and do it really fucking well. Mm. Right? And that's it. And dedicate your time. And that's you know songwriting and singing. I play guitar to write songs. And then some, sometimes on the album as well. But And now I'll have to do it in live performance. But then live performances is a whole nother. Mm. I perform live with various bands five times. Mm-hmm. Now, if I get on stage with these guys and draw a proper audience, we got to practice, 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 practice. Yeah. We got to come on stage and blow their doors off. Mm. This isn't going to be a little pub where you just kind of dork yeah. around and get off and have a couple of pivos, right? So, <laughs> yeah. But it must be... Also, what you were describing—I mean, with the the producer Gregory—you know, your your. It's your songs. It's your mm-hmm. ideas. It's your lyrics. It's your music. It's your project. I mean, you're yes. you're the one that you know. You're the centerpiece of this project. I mean, obviously yeah. surrounded. All the copyrights belong to me. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. But. But isn't it like, <clears throat> isn't it difficult to to then sit there in a in a. I don't know in the studio, and then there's a guy that just tells you do it again, do it again, do it again. Mm. I mean, it was the never is the never at this um, you know like point for you to say fuck you. It's my project. I'm happy with it. This is gonna stay on the tape. <laughs> I didn't try that approach. We came no, close it, a couple of times. Like, come on, man. This is. I mean, but the thing is, you got to find the producer that that you jive with, mm. and he's this. We're the same age, and we grew up in the same experience. We have the same passions, the same bands, um, and so. Our ideas are, so are really, synced. we're synced. If you get a producer that sees your night and day, it's going to be torture. Mm. Um, the, after the first two songs, I realized, okay, we're we're on we're in sync here. We're going to debate a few things, get confused over this or that, but overall, the end product is going to be. We're both going to be really happy because mm. um, he'd add something or he'd throw something. Oh, I think we need this or that, and I'd come back and go, oh my god, it's so much better now, mm. right? So, what you pray is that the opposite doesn't happen. Like the producer will ding around with it overnight and come back and you're like, oh, I hate it now. And, and that never no, happened. There's no fear that you lose, it lose this you part of it. Do you know what I mean? Because you're giving, <clears throat> you're giving away something that you created yeah. to someone to, to work on it, improve it. And like you're saying, the bass yeah. player is coming off with the bass line and you know, it's ridiculous. But, yeah. And, and it, it doesn't feel like, I don't know that, that you're losing any control that you want to keep. Well, you absolutely are, but you have to be willing to give it away. Mm-hmm. Because once you let Fernando go to town and let Manny go to town and let, let Gregory, who better, also did better the, keyboards, things the keyboards, then it becomes your project mm-hmm. as a team. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam's Tractor is a music project. Mm-hmm. Manny is not a member of my band, right? Mm-hmm. Adam's Tractor is me. Mm-hmm. But these are projects that they choose to work on. And they can work on anything they want. Mm-hmm. And if they choose to work with me, I'm flattered and I'm thankful. Mm. I'm grateful. And if they choose to come back and work with me again, I'm even more thankful, right? Like, so, you know, like Manny's not going to fly from the UK every month and play in a, play in a, play a concert. Fernando's traveling the world already touring. Mm. So we agree, okay, this coming summer, we're going to take 10 days in my house and we're going to rig it all up like a music studio And we're going to record the next album where together. Will you, where will your family be? <laughs> I'm going to have to send them somewhere. Yeah. Greece or Italy or something. The band is coming. The band is coming. We're already gearing it all up. Because I have a studio in the house. But 
but we're going to use different rooms, different things. We're going to experiment like they did in the old days. The yeah, Stones yeah. would take a year to do an album, right? Yeah, we're going to do it in yeah, two weeks. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you that because you mentioned that earlier when, when you were talking about the DJing, about the uh, when you were using the two turntables to, to get them to sync, yeah, you know? yeah. Did you use a lot of the old ways? I mean, the analog technology now when you were recording, or how? How? Ah, that's interesting. The um, Gregory's theory is make it record it the way you want it to sound on the album. Mm. So don't just do a guitar riff and then plug it in and manipulate it with a bunch of software. So it's kind of old school. Find the it's sound that you want and, and then, then record. Yeah, and it's ninety-eight percent hardware. Uh huh. So between his studio and mine, we combined a lot of our hardware, um, and we create a good stack. And so we, you know, he had a separate. He has a separate room in his studio where he, those amps. I used a Vox and an Orange amp mainly on these these tracks, and we, they're just cranked. Mm-hmm. They're like on stage cranked and getting the most out of them. So you can't even be in the same room; otherwise, you'd be deaf. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're like, "Yep, that'll do." Nope, and so. 40 times back and forth to yeah. the rooms. Same with drums. The drums are, you know, a whole big set, all mic'd up um, by a professional sound engineer. Mm. Um, and so we it's, were going it's, for... It's, it's kind of yeah. analog in a way. It's, it's, it is analog, yeah. Mm. It's, it's old school. Mm. It, we didn't use tape. <laughs> uh-huh. We still yeah, recorded yeah, yeah, it yeah, into yeah, the dot yeah, electronic yeah. to a hard uh-huh. drive. We're not David Grohl just yet, so mm. um, it was all... That way, and there, you know, in, in certain, if we wanted a certain effect or something, yeah, you can use, you can manipulate, but drums, guitar, and stuff like that, the other hearts, my the raw voice, stuff, yeah. it's all raw. Uh huh. Yeah, cool. that's cool. Yeah, but you always put a little compression, a little echo on stuff. That's yeah, normal. Yeah. That's what. It, yeah. That's that's even back then. Yeah, I will even do that on this. I'll yeah. put some compression on the on this podcast. Yeah. You know, like yeah. everything needs a little bit too. Um, but uh, so I'm just curious. I mean, like. Your dad didn't really speak to you when you were a DJ. Uh, it wasn't really a topic that was discussed. And then I guess he was happy with you when you were a big-ass CEO and, and doing all these businesses, and now you're back to music. Has he stopped talking to you? <laughs> no, no, he hasn't. That's, a, that's an interesting question, though. Yeah, okay, surprise. But, no, I mean, he was never not supportive. He mm. just, if he didn't think it was the course I should be taking, then he didn't overly, he wasn't overly joyful about it, right? Yeah. Um... But, you know, now we're both older. We can sit down and have a laugh and have a nice conversation. And oh. I try to see him at least once or twice a year, you know. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, plus he's keeping track of his grandkids and all that stuff. So, mm. so yeah, no, I think he's pretty pretty proud of, of me and, you know, as proud as, as I am of him, really. But he, I, I think, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, yeah, it's a great story in a way that, you know, like you, definitely go an alternative route i mean like um, most people that would have i think if you would go over the 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 stock exchange listings in the in the us or the ipos that have been in the us you won't find someone with a college degree in 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 hospitality and gastro that that went that way it's and now i mean it's it's the fairy tale that i'm painting here is that you know you did all this hard work you 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 went in the hard way you know and you learned on the go but yeah. now you're kind of enjoying the rewards i mean you 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 financially and are capable of 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 putting focus onto something that actually you really really like yeah and yeah. and you're i mean yeah it's a 
it's a happy ending, you know, because a lot of, a lot of people, th this business environment yeah. doesn't really, it chews them up and, and kind of, you know, you, you don't get out of there somehow, you know? Yeah. Well, it, you know, and it really did. It takes your heart and soul. It's, yeah. but, but you have to love it. And so for me, this you know, starting company is growing with them. It's the only way I could become a founder or CEO. There's no mm. way I could work for IBM and get the top job, mm. right? I don't have the right credentials, number one. Mm. Number two, I could work really hard. I could probably get fairly far up the food chain, but I'm never going to be the boss, and nor do I want to. Mm. I don't want to be a part of a 40,000-person organization with no influence and no quick decision-making and the ability to move and you know, have fun and create. Mm. Right? And they do great things for the world, but it's just not something I can do. Mm. And so that's what's really important. And, and even today... You know, there was a period where it was super focused, the music, for like three or four years. And now I've got to a certain level where I can maintain it and I can still do it, you know, like we've talked about. But it's no longer a full-time gig, mm -hmm. you know, because I, I, I'm a partner in a venture firm. I sit on four boards on technology companies, you know, et cetera. So those take a lot of my time, my normal time now, too. Mm -hmm. But it's, um, I guess it's like you, you're, you're dropping all the stereotypes around what should a businessman be? Mm. What should a musician be? Mm. What should, you know, a guy who's got a million followers on a podcast, what should he be or she mm. be, right? Mm. And I like breaking those stereotypes because the world's just not made up the way it used to be. Well, you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're mm. an engineer, mm. you're a musician, right? And now you can be all those things, right? And so I've always defied that being put in a box. Mm. You know, when at AVG, when people are like, what, you used to be a DJ? Yeah. Oh, no, you didn't. So I'd go up on the, at the club and I'd say, give me 10 minutes. I'll be like, you. I will beat oh. you the shit out of this and here. So like, what? Okay, he was. I believe you now. Mm. Right? But now it's all changed. So I had, to, I had to relearn. So I still, even in my studio downstairs, I still have two 1200s, a mixing board, and I've also got the DJ, you know, a Pioneer DJ electronic mm. Mm. with shitloads of electronic dance music, you know, that I can plug and play and so I can do both now. Mm -hmm. But I had to relearn it because I was so used to dealing with vinyl, yeah, yeah. which I still love. But it's just a lot harder. Mm. Now, today, anyone can be a DJ in 20 seconds. Mm. Doesn't mean they can be a good DJ because still then it's down to how you mix and the music choices. You still have to be amazing at that. Mm. But it's just really easy to mix now. Mm. But do you think you would... would do, you, do you see yourself going into a full-time CEO job in a, in a company again? Or are you content where you are now? You know, for a while I did. Um, and I still get occasional offers from recruiters and stuff. Hey, you should look at this. You should look at that. But I think now I'm fully committed to the, to the venture fund and my family and music. So the quality of life, because mm. I still don't go into an office every day. I still get to meet really interesting technology companies mm. uh, and help them. Uh, I still get to play music. I still get to drive my kids to school. Yeah, you're more in charge of how you spend your yeah. time. Yeah, so you really, that quality of life, you know, and I loved every minute of being on an airplane all the time and running AVG, um, but that was a time and a place, right? Mm. And so now it'd be really hard for me to go back. Plus, I made commitments to the, you know, to the venture fund now, now that I'm a full-time partner. Mm. I got to put in the hours, mm. you know? But having outside interests... That makes you more interesting. That means you have a better view of the world. That means mm -hmm. you'll maybe find better companies to invest in. You'll, you know, so it all comes together. That fabric weaves all together, but it isn't a predefined mm. method, right? Mm. I mean, it's just often that, like, um, often when someone has stayed in this role 
also in management for a long time, it it sort of absorbs the mm -hmm. who you are somehow. That is who you are then. Yeah, lots of and times. and and it's often hard to find the identity when you come out of it or or, or so on. And 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 it's it's. Well, I don't know how much of it is from your own definition of who you are or it's the environment that expects you to be something that you have always been towards them somehow yeah i don't know i think but i think a lot in fact the majority of people they find something that they like and then, then they pursue it because it takes a long time to be good at something mm. whether that's sales management whatever it is so that's what they do but i i just think life's too short so i always try to accelerate my learning <laughs> so i can be good at something faster mm. even if it takes years getting coaches, getting teachers, having good mentors around me, especially in business, uh, to help me learn. Because I, I do believe you need to get there faster and make less mistakes. And so you need, you need other people around you to help you do that. It's totally selfish, but it's part of my recipe for success is I, I never think it's about me. Like mm. I want to, it's selfish because I want to, like I said, get there faster and make less mistakes, which just makes me look good. It makes mm. me more money. Mm. It gives me more free time to spend doing this or this or this for my family, right? So... It, it's just a method I always use mm. and it works, mm. you know, you get more because I could have no job and I could still be 100% busy mm. with all the other yeah, things. Yeah, all the other things that you're doing yeah. And, yeah. and that's the, yeah. And, that, and, I, and I think also that's a, that's a relatively new thing. I mean, I, I don't think that, yeah, our society wouldn't necessarily have ever approved of something like that, mm. I don't know, 40 years ago or 30 years no. ago, you know, like, oh, what does he do? Yeah, he's just, Playing music in his basement, oh, well, something wrong with him, you know. Some, <laughs> yeah. Can someone call the police or the child <laughs> services or something? You know, yeah. there's something wrong. Does he make? Does he have a child? Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to. You told me once that you are involved in something. Um, yeah, we, we're about to finish this. I think uh, you're involved in something called Hana Life, um, and 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 I just yeah. wanted to mention because we touched on it a little bit earlier about the medical industry. Yeah. So th these are some. <clears throat> it's it's a health project, right? Yeah, it's a it's a, a project founded by a friend of mine, mine Joel Einhorn, um, and so he I got to give him most of the credit. But we joined forces because of his um, passion for health and athletics, and you know consuming the right things, and um, and my business knowledge, and also I have a similar like I'm. You know, I'm a cyclist. I like to stay fit. I do something every day, um, you know, in that regard. And so when we came together, Joel had um, been to India to basically correct a, his a broken shoulder and headaches and a whole bunch of things after a bike crash. And he got turned on to the world of Ayurveda. And uh, it just stuck. It They helped him. Um, and he's completely 100% recovered. And now we're running HANA. We have been there for five years. And so we have seven products on the market, which are all sourced from India and Bhutan. And you, you got to remember that when they take herbs and spices and they mix them together, it's medicinal, mm. right? So it's pretty serious. Whereas here, they're just food supplements. Yeah, yeah. It's turmeric, ashwagandha, yeah. mix this, mix that. You know, take some turmeric, mix it with some black pepper. And you got a different product. Okay, that's, that's for this. So they all have specific purposes. And so... For us, we look for these ancient remedies and things that have only used in certain parts of the world or they're even dying off, and we try to then bring them into the mainstream. And so we have seven products. Uh, that, that it's called Hana Life, H-A-N-A-H-L-I-F-E.com. And uh, our products there are just unbelievable high quality. 
because what we do is we know where everything is sourced and everything is wild harvested from the jungles by local, you know, harvesters and farmers and stuff. We know them. So we really control the, the supply chain. And then we use ancient production methods. So it preserves all the nutrients and all everything, the qualities, yeah. all the qualities. And so when you do that with the, with these herbs and spices and things that we mix together, you, you feel it like you're more alert. You're better on the bike. You, you just have, you'd have to go read the reviews from our customers. But, and, and it's what, a, but what, yeah. what, what so kind of ailments or, you know, what, what are these? I mean, you know, if you take two or three out of those mm-hmm. seven products, I mean, what is yeah. this? Uh, Generally, what, they, what, we, what our main core focus was initially with the flagship product, HANA One, was to boost your immune system. Mm-hmm. And what we later learned is that when you really do that successfully, meaning boost your immune system, then your oxygen utilization in your body improves, your mental clarity improves, you're less tired, you're definitely stronger during the workout, especially if it's cardio, you recover quicker both during the workout and after the workout. Mm. Like I went from, you know, that two o'clock brain fog sitting at your desk, whatever, to nothing. Mm. And, you know, when I was at home, I'd be taking like a 15 minute power nap in the afternoon. Couldn't do it if I tried now. Mm. Because what, what these herbs do is it helps you kind of turn back the clock of time. Mm. And, uh, you want to take this. And so, um, no, we can leave it. Mm. And so it just makes your body stronger. It's Mm. not like these chemicals or these herbs are, you have to take them every day. It's just helping your own immune system work more efficiently. Mm. So like I take, I'll take some of these herbs, especially the core product for six months. And then I take it, I come off it for a month. Mm -hmm. I feel no difference. Mm. You know, and then I start to feel a little degradation. And then you start again. And then I start again. Yeah. And so, and where so can it's, I buy it's a really honor. Where can I buy it? You can only buy it. That's the problem. You can buy it here, but the customs just kills you. Uh-huh. So really, it's it's only in the U.S. right now. Okay. But um, I bet 60% of my listeners are in the U.S. I have no fucking yeah. clue why, but they are there. You're interesting. Yeah. You're different. You're not the same old, you oh, know, same yeah, old thing, or, you know? Or just there's a, or the, or the, guys, the, the guys that I'm paying for downloading... On the server farm, they oh, that's good. in the U.S. Hey, whatever works. Yeah. Um, so they can yeah. buy it, hanalive.com in the U.S. And I'm, I'm, yeah. what I like about this is that, and, and, and it's, a, but that's a whole different dialogue though. But I mean, do you think that these kind of products are going to have a comeback? Because uh, well, the reason, yeah, we reason we wanted to talk about this is that the medical industry, I mean, it's such a oh, fucking huge industry. $74 billion or and something just yeah. in food supplements. Yeah. And yeah, and then we have all this stuff that has worked for us for I don't know, hundred thousand years, two hundred thousand years, twenty thousand years, fifty thousand years. Whatever. Some of the some of the recipes we use are twenty five hundred years old. Yeah, yeah. And and but these are people that are called um, snake oil salespeople today. You know, like yeah. the the ones that We're, are actually yeah selling the natural stuff. But do you think that this is I mean, yeah. Now you're a, you're a successful businessman. You know everything. Do you see a trend? Do you think yes, natural definitely. remedies are coming stronger? Definitely, definitely. People are more aware of what they put into their body. They're looking for supplementation because also too, you know, we're f- over farming the planet. So the mm. nutrients that are coming from the soil into the plants that we eat and into the animals, if you mm. if you're mm. you know if you eat meat, it's, it doesn't have the same impact. So mm. supplements do matter, and if you look at um, like. India, Bhutan, China, Japan, these remedies have been around for thousands of years and mm. they're still around because mm. they work. Mm. 
right? So just because... And also those markets can't afford traditional medicine in the same... I mean, yeah. you know, one of those markets are yeah. not as interesting for medical companies. They are. The, but they still try. Like the, our Dr. Vanugapal, who's the guy that we cooperate in India, mm. he said like his nieces and nephews, they just want to go eat a Snickers bar. And they, they're moving away from these traditions and they're getting insanely unhealthy. Mm. And he, it's killing him. He has to force them to eat these remedies and do these things naturally, normally like they used to do when he was a kid. He's 78 years old. And his face and his beard look like he's 70 years I think old. I, I think I saw him on, your, his, on yeah, your homepage. Yeah, but his body looks like it's like 30. Mm. And he's flexible and he's like, okay, so yeah. this shit works, right? He takes care and he eats the right stuff. Mm. Um, and it, it, it has that impact on your body and your health. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so, I was curious about this when I saw saw this. Uh, just because, yeah, I think I think like this, the, the, the whole... I think we're going in the wrong way with both what we eat and what we use as medicine and, and treatments. Yeah. And we don't really yeah. look for the root. We actually look for the, the symptoms and, yep. and so on. But yeah, they just treat the symptoms. Yeah, um, I'm going to have to get you again to talk because I really want to talk to you about cybersecurity tracking and privacy because I know that's a topic. Yeah. You wrote books on, on yeah. this. And, yeah. and, and that's, that's my a passion topic. as well. Yeah. And uh, when we, were, we had coffee the other day and then you told me that Google knows when I go to the toilet. Um, and I'm curious <laughs> to expand on that a little bit. Um, I wonder yeah. if it's in 15 years they know what ended up in the toilet, probably. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The future of, of, of privacy or anti-privacy and cybersecurity, they're all intertwined. Yeah. And the stories I can tell, and I'm happy to tell some of them. Yeah. For sure. For yeah. sure. Um, okay, so the people who are listening want to know more. So that's Adam Tractor with a K. Yep, one word. Well, everything's one word on yeah. Instagram. Uh, and there, there, two words normally. And there's a Facebook page as well, right? There's YouTube, Facebook, Facebook. SoundCloud, yeah. and Instagram. And I, I mainly post on Instagram. Yeah, and I'll put links to all of this in the in the episode description. Uh, so wherever you're listening, then you can you can find that in the episode yeah. It sounds and all the songs are on Spotify. Yeah. Uh, when is the next one released? Uh, October twenty sixth. Okay, that's probably before we publish this episode okay it could be I, i'm not sure I, i'm I'm, rec- I'm recording a little bit of a stock i'm, I'm building stock oh good 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 uh, and uh, yeah um yeah no, Hanna, that's great hannalife.com hannalife.com if you're in the u.s then just yeah it's worth checking out yeah at least have a look you know and uh Anything else we are promoting here or talking about? No. no, I didn't expect to promote anything. Actually, I thought this was just a fun conversation around yeah. diversity and doing funny things and yeah. what you can I, accomplish I, in your life. Al- you know, it's always good to tell people where to know more. You know, uh, it's yeah. because if anyone is still listening now, two hours and ten minutes after we started talking, <laughs> then they are they they possibly would want to know more. You know, yeah, that's, that's true. the thing. That's a sign. You know, uh-huh. yeah, um, yeah, guys. Um, yeah, Facebook page, the bunker. How the hell did we end up here? I'm actually thinking about rebranding the podcast. I'm, I, it's, it's, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll remain. The name will remain more or less the same, but might, might be different when you when you hear this. <laughs> um, and um, uh, bunker. But, but if you if you built a brand and people know it, yeah, why change it's it? Too, it's a very long name, the bunker. How the hell did we end up here? It's. Like, I like it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I maybe. I'll, I'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, thinking going on. 
And uh, Facebook, no, Instagram, that's Bunker Prague. And um, uh, YouTube channel, the Bunker, how the hell did the end appear? That's amazing still photos of me and my visitors and guests um, with a beautiful soundtrack of the podcast on top. It's age-restricted because I had a twerker on and uh, YouTube didn't want twerking to be on YouTube, so they age-restricted the whole channel. So if you have kids, don't show them my podcast. Um, <laughs> Just that one. Yeah. And the whole channel was actually blocked into an age restricted channel. What if you take that one down? Yeah, I don't want to take that down. It's a great episode. And the girl has so a channel herself with thousands of followers, and, and that's fine. But my one fucking episode, I don't know. Someone must have reported it or something. I don't know. It's, it's a weird thing. I, and this, I, I hate this. But that, yeah, I hate how these companies can just make a decision like this. And when you want to ask them why, you get a robot. Can't get anybody. Yeah. 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 It's it's awful, and and it it means that you actually start really thinking about what you say. It you, it, yeah, you, 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 you be, modify yeah. you modify your your own words. Yeah, and it's it's stupid, you know. It's yeah, we'll talk about it more later. But yeah. it, it is when you you're, you're um you're being trained to behave a certain way to do certain things and not other things, so you can still be on their platform. Yeah, so it's training it's, you. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I, I, refuse, I refuse to be trained, and I know you're you're, you're the same. Yeah. I have so, I have similar stories. Yeah, where you got where I got banned from Instagram for saying Zuckerberg equals the devil, and they and they found it. It was just in a comment, and they blocked me for three days, and said, "Don't do that again." Okay, that's censorship. Thanks for thanks that's for having complete my, censorship. Thanks for having my podcast blacklisted. You can Zuckerberg, take that out. Zuckerberg is great. Um, Jer, thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> into the <laughs>